thanks to our title sponsor, National University. National University is committed to supporting veterans, active duty personnel, and military families through flexible online courses and master's and doctoral programs in high-demand fields, providing excellent career advancement opportunity. National University is a yellow ribbon school that proudly accepts the post-9-11 GI Bill and goes the extra mile by offering additional assistance to cover expenses that may not be covered by the GI Bill. To learn more, visit nu.edu forward slash veteran. That movie, Top Gun Maverick, was absolutely fantastic. Three times in the theater, not enough. Best movie ever. Top Gun Maverick was awesome. You've seen the movie, maybe even a couple times. Last week, you heard from the aerial filming coordinator. Well, this week on the Fighter Pilot Podcast, you hear the inside scoop on how the magic was made from the Navy's advisor to Paramount. I had two main jobs going into it. First, obviously, primarily was safety. I was the uniformed senior aviator representative. My job from the air boss was don't put an airplane in the dirt or the water. And then, obviously, my second role would be to protect the Navy's interest, core values, image. So those are my kind of two big jobs. The other 943 just kind of popped up. It creeped to, I was, you know, jack of all trades and probably master of none. The cheese on the face. The beeps off the tail, the screaming around my Cascade Mountains. Nicely done, Bird. Nicely done, Tom Cruise. Seeing Top Gun Maverick on the big screen was absolutely worth the wait. Strap in for the Fighter Pilot Podcast, the internet radio show that explores the fascinating world of air combat, the aircraft, the weapon systems, and most importantly, the people. Now, here's your host, retired U.S. Navy fighter pilot, Vincent Aiello. You've got to see this movie. Just amazing. It is Sierra Hotel, baby. Sierra Hotel. All right, listeners, I want you to imagine you are in a three-person meeting discussing the movie Top Gun Maverick. One of the other persons is Jerry Buckheimer. The other is Tom Cruise, and you're standing there trying to figure out how to make this movie work. Well, my guest today doesn't have to imagine what that's like. He lived it. He was there. He made the magic happen. He's a former guest of the show, and he's in studio with me today. Brian Ferguson, welcome back to the Fighter Pilot Podcast, sir. Hey, Jello. Thanks for having me. It's great to be here. Man, I can't tell you how much I'm looking forward to this. I think this might be 143 episodes, which, by the way, you were episode two, so we've come a long way since you were on. I can't think of another one I've looked forward to as much as this. We've been working on it for a couple of years. You've been busy with Top Gun Maverick, and uh, you've been busy with interviews and everything else. But today, you're my guest, and I'm very grateful for your time. Thank you. Well, thanks. All right. So when we saw you at the end of episode two or heard you, I guess you told us, as I asked you what the future held, I think I asked if you were going to fly again. Turns out, sounds like you did as we'll get into. And as we heard last week with our buddy uh, K2 and you didn't really know what the future held. And I'm guessing you couldn't possibly have foreseen what did transpire in the last five years, huh? I would never have imagined quite the roller coaster ride. <laughs> and I'll correct you from earlier when you said I made the magic happen. A ton of people made oh, okay. the magic happen, and yes. I was a teeny tiny little part of it. All right. Well, but there was magic, and it happened. So that's good. <laughs> there you go. And we'll get into that. What was your involvement in Top Gun Maverick? I had two main jobs going into it. The first, obviously, primarily was safety. I was the uniformed senior aviator representative. So I, you know, my job from the air boss was don't put an airplane in the dirt or the water mm. goes without saying anything the Navy hoped to gain from this, which is recruiting retention, positive image, et cetera, would be erased tenfold order of magnitude. If we bent an airplane or hurt somebody or lost a crew, 
And then obviously my second role would be to protect the Navy's interest, core values, image, things like that. We didn't want this to go down a road of Hollywood license such that we're doing things that people are watching going, is that what they do in the Navy? Or the, you know, for example, a junior sailor is watching it going, I can do that. That sounds great. Hmm. So I had to make sure that we kind of stayed within the Navy's left, right, lateral limits of what is appropriate. So those are my kind of two big jobs. The other 943 just kind of popped up as it went along. So I became the carrier coordinator, the embark guy, the uniform guy. You know, there were little pieces of dialogue here and there, some realism in combat because they don't know what they don't know. They had a scene with surface air missiles and there's like three of them. And I go, yeah, it's, it's not really what it would look like. There'd be 50 and nobody would be flowing together. It'd be airplanes and going in every direction. A lot of hectic comms on the radio. Did a lot of coordination, jets, airspace. I briefed all the aerial missions with Kevin LaRosa and Tom and his creative team in the room. And then there was a lot of boring stuff, like the lawyers got involved with everything. If they gave out a hat or a ball cap or a coin and they said, hey, this is for everybody on the crew gets one. Here you go. You know, you hand it to JAG and they figure out, you know, okay, it's worth $8 or something. Okay, you can keep that. But then they log it or, you know, it was meals or hotels. It all has to be tracked so that there's no gifting because I was working for the Navy on active duty. So I was beholden to all the federal laws and regulations that guard all that stuff. And then public affairs, dealing with the bases, getting base access. It creeped to jack of all trades and probably master of none. (laughs) So your paycheck was from the Navy, and you were representing the Navy's interests. You were working with Paramount, and I bet, I don't know why we have to go down this right away, but, you know, hey, we're going to dinner, or hey, we need you in this place, and here's a hotel room or something else. So you had to obviously balance all these different interests and offers and different things. So, but It was hard at first because... You know, I'd go to a hotel and I'm like, well, this is nicer than any hotel the Navy would put me in. So I'd call the lawyers and they'd say, is everybody else in that hotel? No, you don't have to go to the Motel 6. You stay where everybody else stays. It's legal and legitimate. And they had to vet all that stuff. And they, Paramount, would do the travel at their expense. And it was just whatever everybody else on the crew got, I got. And the cast was different. They're they're flying around Learjets. I didn't get the Learjet treatment. But uh, Okay. How did you end up in this role? Again, you're a, a reservist. You're flying for the airlines. You're doing your thing. And... What was the background for, hey, we're making a movie and, oh, Brian Ferguson is our man? Probably like just about every other job I've gotten in the Navy, just nobody else available, I assume. (laughs) No, it was kind of a funny story. So I was working as deputy for Naval Air Force Reserve for Admiral Crane. I was his number two guy running the Reserve Air Force. And it was uh, supposed to be a gap job for four or five months while they screened a post-major command guy. Somehow the timing doesn't work out and they're going to have a gapped billet. And that's not a billet that can be gapped. So I know Gomer Gilbert was CEO and I was XO and he was chief of staff at the time. He goes, hey, you know, we're looking to have you come in and fill this gap on the staff for three or four months in San Diego. Shouldn't be too hard. Are you interested? I said, sure. So I go down there and do that. Timing works out such that there's nobody else. Admiral takes a liking to me. We end up doing this for a year or or 14 months, something like that. A lot of traveling, a lot of office hours, you know, it was a flag staff job and then Mm -hmm. interfacing with a three-star. So at the end of that, I'm ready to go back to Delta and just have a life that was a little less pressurized and try to capitalize on some of the finances of it. So uh, I was in my backyard one day and Cesar Cherico sends me a text and says, how would you like to be the Navy's representative for Top Gun Maverick? And I immediately responded, I still have the text, ha, 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 nope. (laughs) Because at the time, I'm like, I'm ready to take the pack off for a little bit and Uh just decompress and get back to the family and things like that. Uh 
So I see him the next day and he goes, hey, you know, I really need you to do this. And I say no. And then the next day he goes, he pitches me this thing like, you know, the, the adversary is going to come over the hill and we're not going to be recruiting the best people because you're not doing this. You know, it's in jest, right? <laughs> but he's painting like, I'm surprised he didn't hang a flag behind me and play patent music or That's something. Right. So he's giving me this hard sell and I go, okay, I'll go home and talk about it. We go through this iteration a few times. I'm at home and I tell my wife who's supported me in everything that I've ever done for all of my life. God bless the Navy spouses. The hardest job in the Navy. So I go, hey, Sue, what do you think? Should we do this or not? And she goes, well, what do you think? I said, I think we need to take a step back and breathe. And there's plenty of other people, you know, Yank Cummings was doing it, but then he has to go take command of USS Ford. Sarge Slaughter comes in, but he's going to take USS Abraham Lincoln. Mm-hmm. Chaser Keithley comes into the transition period, but he's retired as a civilian and they want a uniformed guy. So I said, you know, they'll find somebody. I don't think it's me. I think we need to do more family stuff. She goes, okay, well, you know, for what it's worth, I just think you should consider that you came in on the first movie and you've had a pretty good run. So you might consider that going out at the end of your career on the second movie kind of makes sense. And I went, yeah, I hadn't thought about that. That's actually a good point. (laughs) I said, but I don't think that's enough. And she goes, well, the other thing is if you don't do the movie and it's great, I'm going to listen to you complain for 25 years. And if you don't do the movie and it's horrible, you're still going to complain that you could have done better. She goes, I just don't want to listen to you complain for 25 years. Just go do the movie. So I go back into Caesar and I said, okay, I'll do it. And at one point he goes, all right, so we'll send you down to Lemoore and we'll uh, get you a Cat 4 syllabus and the Super Hornet. You can do all the flying. And I said, that sounds like a horrible plan. He goes, what? That's a great deal. I go, yeah, it's a great deal for an 06 reservist. Mm-hmm. Not a great deal for all the lieutenants in Lemoore. And I think that would be a retention issue. And he goes, wow, you say it like that. It sounds really bad. <laughs> so he goes, who do you want to do the flying? And I say, oh, I want it to be fleet lieutenants. Yeah. You know, guys right off their first cruise. And I said, if I'm going to do it, you got to let me do it my way. And he goes, okay, sold. So that was how I came into it. And, you know, again, back to nobody else available, probably. But, you know, I think it worked out reasonably well. You've seen the film. So hopefully my small role in it was, I hope, added, not subtracted. But that's how I kind of got into it and down the road. Well, you were, I think, a big part of it. You were quick earlier to uh, deflect some of the credit. Certainly it did take the whole team. And we'll kind of, I think, uh, hopefully flesh some of that out here in the next, however long you're willing to give me on your time, because I bet we could go for a while. So was it that admiral that you reported to, or who was your boss in a sense? I was working for Commander Naval Air Force as the air boss at the time was uh, Vice Admiral Chip Miller Bullet. Mm -hmm. And it was funny because the first day of filming in, I think it was October of 2018, he shows up to the set. And he says, um, since you said I'm free to take the gloves off on sailor speak, I go, well, boss, you know, what's your guidance? And he goes, well, this is important for the Navy. It can go either really well or really poorly. So you're in charge. You speak for me. I don't need to hear from you. Make your own decisions. Call me if you think you need something, but you got this. Don't fuck it up. And then he walks away. And I'm like, huh. Well, I would think there would be, you know, in the Navy with all the big instructions with 500 pages just right. to do a change of command. I'm like, at least a pamphlet, but, you know, DFIU, that's it. You know, he tells me it's your show. Don't mess this up. Right. And so those were my marching orders for figuring out how to make a movie of which I had never done, knew nothing about, uh, learned pretty quickly, kind of a crash course. Yeah. So I reported, quote, directly to him, but I would call chief of staff and say, hey, you know, here's the thing. I don't think this needs to go to the boss, but what do you think? And he goes, boss told you. If you think it needs to go in his office, let him know. Mm-hmm. And some stuff was bigger. And, and I go, you know, I kind of want to go sit down with the boss. But Vice Admiral Miller was very hands-off. 
and very trusting. <laughs> I don't know how smart that was. I told him later, you took a lot of risk there, boss. But he was very nice and accommodating. He said, no, I trusted you and it worked out. So yeah. there's a reason he's a three-star and I'm not. This reminds me, though, of when we were junior officers and we'd have to stand squadron duty officer. Remember this? Because the best you could do is break it's even. break even. Yeah, that right? was it. Like, yeah. If nobody said... I was a safety officer. Today, same thing, right? Like, versus if you let something dumb happen or do something dumb, then everybody right. hears about it. So Yeah, a tie was the best that I expected I could have gone for. Now, having said that, in retrospect, I'm, you know, as of yesterday, I'm starting to get a lot of feedback coming in. People are being overly nice and, you know, kind of putting more credit on me than is due and saying, you made a great movie. You know, this is amazing. And thanks for what you did. To reiterate, not me. It was a huge pie. And I just had one little piece of it, whether we're talking about Yank and Sarge and Chaser and Pops or Kevin LaRosa or the myriad of people that work on the Hollywood side. I mean, it, when they say cast of thousands, it's cast of thousands. Yeah. You know, every day when we move the location somewhere, it's like three or 400 people. Mm. And it's kind of like the carriage. You know, like there's no person whose job is unimportant. You may be washing sinks on the ship, but guess what? If the sinks aren't getting washed, everybody's getting cold or the crud or whatever. And then now right. the air crew's down. You can't launch the strike. Everybody that's there has an important job. It may not be a glamorous job, but it's important, whether it's even the person picking up the lunches or whatever. And everybody that did it was mm-hmm. amazing. I mean, that's an amazing crew and cast, whether it's the Navy or the industry side. So yeah. very impressive. Well, I mean, right. It's the same analogy with the human body. Uh, We think about the mouth and the face, but it's the liver and the kidneys and all these other parts that all have to work for the whole organism to work. And so it sounds like uh, the liver's got to work. Is that still a thing? (laughs) Apparently. Oh, no. (laughs) Some of us uh, less. It's a good thing I got two of them. (laughs) Yeah. Tell me, like, what was the Navy's goals, requirements and state? Like you kind of alluded to it, but what ultimately did they hope to get out of participation? And I want to ask you about that next as far as what was contributed, but what were some of the goals and requirements? So one big overarching goal that kind of drove all of the support and acceptance at a, you know, arguably challenging time. We were coming out of a readiness deficit. We couldn't have made this movie a year earlier and we were able to do it without affecting combat readiness. But the one overarching goal was recruiting, right? So you got all these young people coming up the economy when we're making the movie was good. The airlines are hiring. So what are these people as they get out of college going to do? It's a buyer's market for these talented, patriotic, aggressive, smart young men and women. We wanted to reach out and grab some of them to the point that, you know, I'm hoping that at the end of this year, the recruiting offices are taking highly qualified men and women and saying, I'm sorry, we're full, (laughs) like fully qualified people that would be great fighter pilots or great ship drivers and master chiefs and whatever. Recruiting was clearly the goal. And, you know, somebody asked me the other day about the costing data or something. And I said, boy, I wish my investment strategy was as good as the Navy's because they invested a total bottom line of zero and their return on investment is going to be enormous. You know, some of it's (laughs) human and intangible. And how do you put a dollar value with that? Because maybe they would have joined anyway. But we did it to overwhelmingly affect recruiting so that we can have our absolute pick of the best people in America to come and sail with us and fight with us. So that was a big thing. There's a a second order effect that, you know, we didn't really drive the support on, but we kind of hope is something that lingers there is retention. Now, I don't think somebody who's a J.O. who's looking at the airlines and is ready to drop the letter goes and sees the movie and goes, oh, no way, man, I'm going to stay for next 20 years. (laughs) But that person's out there, right? And it's not because they'll walk out of the movie and go, I changed my mind, rip up the letter. I'm like in the, it's you know, behind more. enemy lines. Admiral, you got a letter. I want it back. <laughs> That's right. But, but it's one more data point. But it is a data point, right? Yeah, so yeah. I think it's going to be more of a slow burn process where somebody sees the movie 
and they go, you know what? This is the coolest job in the world. And you and I did it. It's the coolest job in the world. You know, I've had the cast members, the, you know, the movie stars to include the larger names say, it's pretty cool being a movie star, but not as cool as what you do. And that's a fact. It's the sport of Kings, man. There's nothing cooler than landing a fighter on the boat in the rain. Well, actually, that's not cool at all. (laughs) You know what I mean, though, right? Um, It's amazing and exciting to be able to have people, or whether it's family members that go, hey, you know, they call their nephew who's in VFA, whatever, up in Lemoore, Mm -hmm. who's kind of getting tired of some of the stuff and the deployments and whatever, and gets the email from Aunt Sally that goes, boy, I saw the movie, which you do is so amazing and incredible. And then we'll have people who will get stopped at ball games and in restaurants and whatever, like see the shirt on or whatever, go, are you a Navy pot? Oh, yeah. yes, sir. I am. It's so amazing what you do. Thank you. I think it's going to be a resurgence of that stuff. And somewhere in there, I think there'll be a little bit of a groundswell, a little spark of people going, you know, let me reassess. Do I really want to get out and go fly for the airlines? Like I did a full ride, so I'm kind of getting to do the best of everything. <laughs> but the folks, the men and women who are, you know, at kind of their precipice, do I drop it all and go or do I keep doing it? You know, maybe we can hang on to a few of them or at least bring them over to the reserve side where, you know, you can, if you're going to go do something else, at least stay with us for part of it and keep doing this and right. keep serving America. So I think that was a secondary. And I think it's a realistic goal that we have that as a second order effect. And then finally, it's just, showcasing the excellence, not only of naval aviation and the Navy writ large, but, Mm. you know, let's be honest, as you wear the patch, right? The excellence of Top Gun as an institution and what it means for combat lethality in the American Navy and across the entire force, really. You know, the school and the patch, all that stuff seeps out to every corner of the Navy. And, you know, it's been replicated by other services and within different communities in the Navy and, you know, our adversaries, you know, all that stuff about who's got what, what their airplanes and their T-shirts look like. They all want to be the school. And there's only one. But I think this will bring all that up and showcase the excellence and the lethality of our combat power that comes from Navy Fighter Weapons School. So attraction, retention, and goodwill, perhaps, is maybe one way to summarize that. I want to tell you a quick story about what you just said, though. So my family and I were in uh, Yosemite, right? A good place to escape to when you're based in Lemoore. And my wife was wearing a Navy sweatshirt. And we happened to be at one of the little cafe-style restaurants. And this guy walks up to me because he can see us together. And he goes, hey, were you in the Navy? I said, I am in the Navy. (laughs) And he goes, I want to buy your meal. (laughs) Yeah. Um, Okay. (laughs) And so he did. And, I, you know, we said hello. And, and he said, I just appreciate what you guys do. And so, yeah, I mean, it's good to see because that hasn't always been the case in American history. And we don't have to necessarily go back and talk about how the Vietnam vets were treated. But sure. we live in an environment now, thankfully, where people seem to appreciate the sacrifices that, like you said, young women and men are making. I think so. But I also think that I won't say I'll agree to disagree with you, but to flip the coin on the other side, I think to some degree, there are large pockets of society who, and this is a good thing, frankly, we've been at war kinetically for over 20 years. We're not designed to do that, right? Right. And if you ask the average person in the street, you know, we've been kinetically at war, like putting warheads on targets. And they go, we're not at war. Yeah, man, there's somebody going off the boat right now to go drop bombs somewhere because that's what it takes for you to be in the mall at the food court and not listening to some other language and seeing Red Dawn and the parachutes coming down <laughs> right. to the school, right? We've been at war doing this, and I think that's lost on a lot of people. So this film, you know, there's no specific adversary identified. There's no politics in it. We're not trying to make any kind of a statement, but it is modern day, and it is viable tactics and viable adversary and realistic mission set. And I think when people watch that, there's going to be people that go, is that really, can we do that? Is that <laughs> stuff real? Do we have people banging off the front end and flying into country and going against 
heavily defended targets and contested airspace and shooting their way out, maybe it'll pose the question to when they see you and Yosemite, like, is that really, they really do that? You go, yeah, we really do that. And mm-hmm. we're doing it everywhere in the world every day. Not necessarily like big kinetic strikes, but we are launching off a ship with live ordnance every day somewhere. May not be dropping it every day, but we're up there ready to enforce national will, shape discussions, and if called upon, to go live in kinetic and make the bad man go away. And this movie showcases that in a way that also highlights what is the contribution of the folks up in Fallon at Top Gun. Yeah. And so I think we'll get into a little bit more of that. I want to ask you, though, about the Navy's contribution in a sense. I mean, there's aircraft, there's fuel, there's pilots, there's facilities, there's ranges, bases. I mean, there's a lot. You said it didn't cost them anything, but there are, I don't know if it's even an intangible, but it's costing them people and equipment in a sense. Well, so it didn't cost the Navy anything per se, except opportunity and manpower. For an example, like when we talk about costing, I had to send these bills to Paramount that the comptroller ran through the Chinfo people, and it was oddly specific. I sent them a bill for, you know, I'm not going to talk dollars because I think we want to stay away from sure. what the movie costs because that's Paramount side, but it would be XX million something and 14 cents. And I remember the producer one day calls me, he's like, and 14 cents? Do you need the 14 cents? I'm like, it's just Tommy, it's going to the treasury. You got to give me the 14 cents <laughs> in addition to the several million dollars. Yeah. And that was what was called a fully burdened cost, which is we launch an airplane and it's X number of thousands of dollars per flight hour, but not just for fuel. People think, oh, well, they paid for the gas. No, they didn't pay for the gas. They paid for the gas. They paid for the oil. They paid for the fact that a left AMAT or fuel pump or whatever only lasts for X number of hours and it's going to wear out. So it's basically Paramount's buying some fraction of that part that we know is going to wear out at a certain rate. And we're not using that for combat readiness. We're using it for this giant recruiting ad. Nonetheless, they had to, even though we're getting the benefits from it, as people walk into the recruiting offices, they're paying for that. And they're actually even paying for the dollar cost, a big complex algorithm for it, but it's the plane captain and their time and whatever. So it really factored in like everything. And then you talk about opportunity and manpower. So like one of the toughest things we did was when we were up in Fallon shooting. And so when I'm in Lemoore, I'm using 122 pilots and fleet flight line pilots. When I'm up in Fallon, I'm using Top Gun and Nautic pilots. And the challenge with Top Gun was there was a class going on. So I'm working with Pops when he was a CEO up there. And and I'm like, hey man, I need two guys for air to air tomorrow. And and we'd have to work through a complex problem set because, I mean, you know what it's like teaching a class. You're an instructor up there, right? It's not like the first movie. We're going to go in for the 10 a.m. brief in the hangar, and then we're going to go play some volleyball. We'll do a quick <laughs> 1v1, then we're going out to dinner. You know, it's not like that. The days are, it's a good day if you've been in the schoolhouse at FTB for 12 hours, right? Yeah, As a student, okay. at least, you know? <laughs> yeah. So, you know, I'd have to use the instructors, but they're coming in and they're filming, and it's like an ad tech or something. It's like a regular Top Gun class mission. You know, the brief is really long and then the mission may be fairly short and the debrief is really long because you're doing comm and admin and all the tactics and you're in the room forever and you just want to chew your arm off. (laughs) But the middle part where the flight was, you know, these things are two hours long because it's a super hornet with a tank. And so they're out there doing all their stuff. And the briefs were much longer because like admin, I could maybe do the 12 minutes in admin sometimes, but I've got actors in the airplanes, right? So, and anytime I bring a new pilot in to fly the actors, it's baseline, redo admin, tech admin. (laughs) And then we would do a big production piece, which was, you know, that could go for an hour and a half. So to bring an instructor out of their, hey, I've got to do a 1v1 in the morning, and then I'm giving the AMRAM lecture in the afternoon. Great. Can I borrow you for five hours in the middle? (laughs) They sometimes weren't available and I would work the problem. We worked the solution and the manpower, but it was super challenging for like the bros to 
in addition to a class, which has a robust, dynamic, full pressurized schedule Mm -hmm. to go, hey, man, can you tack five hours onto that? And sometimes it just wasn't practical because guys flying twice and then I can't stick them in a jet for a third one to do some weird movie stuff. So it would be usually a guy that's given a lecture or something. Long, long days. And that just came out of high to the instructors or the 122 IPs or something. But in addition to the people, I mean, we've both been at Fallon. In fact, we were at the same time uh, last time. There's range limitations. Yeah, that was really hard. There's only so many aircraft. I mean, you guys said you were doing this in 18. Weren't they just clawing their way back from hundreds of down Super Hornets? And so... Right. So we were coming out of the bucket of readiness and all the work that Airbus Miller and Airbus Shoemaker and Chaser and 40, the readiness guy, they had all worked and crushed themselves to get funding and get a plan and work with the flight line and Lemoore and the Commodores. They had just come out of this to get to their, you know, I think the original number was 341, fully mission capable. And then, you know, when the dam broke and we got our stride, it was great. We finally had a robust stable of airplanes that we could do this with. Because that was the other guidance for me was we cannot take away from combat readiness. Mm -hmm. You're just going to have to put the big foot in the little shoe and make it work. And if anything drops out, it's the movie. And I made it clear to Paramount, which I think was unique to them, because when they make a movie, especially a big money studio like that, you know, they may say, hey, to do the scene where we blow up the semi on the highway, we're going to close down the 405 at 9 a.m. for three hours. <laughs> I imagine they, you know, work with the city and fantasy of the location guy, get some paper signed, and Jerry Bruckheimer writes a check for something, and then the city goes, yeah, this is good for the city, and so we're going to, and 8 million Angelinos, Angelinans, Los Angelinans, whatever, whatever you're called, have to go the long way around. You know, I think they were used to kind of being the 800-pound gorilla, and mm-hmm. then they come to us, and, hey, we need this and that and this and that. And I'm like, well, here's what I can give you. The carrier that you want to be out for a month starting on the 1st of May, it's going out on the 14th, and it's going to be out for 11 days, and you can come, <laughs> but you're a guest, and you have to work around the ship schedule. Yeah. I mean, that makes sense, right? They're used to, frankly, having power and influence, and uh, at some point, they, it sounds like they met their match. Let's talk specifics. I mean, as much as you're able to, first off, filming locations. I mean, when you see the movie, you see Mojave, you see, uh, looks like what's China Lake, you see the Pacific Northwest, you see North Island. I mean, where all did you guys go and what challenges did you have at some of these different places? Well, we went to, uh, obviously, like I said, Fallon. We did a lot of filming up there. A lot of the air scenes were in Fallon. Okay. You see the dog fighting, you know, obviously desert background, that's Fallon. We filmed a lot of the ground stuff here in San Diego. Obviously, you know about the beach and the bar that we had there and right. some of the hangars that we took over. And there's some stuff in downtown. Coronado was a great partner to help let us film in the streets in Coronado. The base was great. Timmy Slutz was CEO. He opened his doors and was fantastic about letting all this go down to the extent that he could. And all of this was predicated on the Navy's mission comes first, right. which complicates my targeting problem with Paramount and their timeline and budget. Because, you know, you're talking... Tom Cruise, he's an expensive person. When he shows up on set, the cost of that, whatever that day is, goes up. If we're working around other things, and they were all very understanding. Tom and Jerry and production company was like, we get it. The Navy's the Navy and it's doing its thing. And they would ask, they would give me these enormous asks. You know, we're like, oh, you're serious? Okay. But to their credit, they're like, well, we're just going to ask. If you say no, then okay. Right. But we're not going to not ask because you might say no. They would give some pretty big asks and we worked together to get what we could, you know, the base. So bringing a whole ton of people on base, there's a lot of security issues, right? We'd have to vet everybody. So the folks in Naval Base Coronado Security Department, when we bring 300 people on, every one of those people has to be vetted. Nobody can be 
foreign felons. Asian <laughs> and felons and not like Hollywood is hiring felons to come in there. But, you know, well, this guy's got 11 speeding tickets and you want him to be the driver or the bus on the bit. No, <laughs> I'm making that up as an example, but yeah. they would have to vet enormous amount of people. And then things change. They're like, oh, those 60 people are not coming. We have 60 other people today. Well, they, all the base people are going through and getting the clearances. So there was that you know, environmentals, right? So you want to film and just like when you want to do BFM, right? Well, it's nasty in Oceania or Lemoore, so we go to Key West to do the BFM debt. Well, we had to film where we film because the footprint is there and we would go there on a schedule. So if the weather was bad, like one day in Fallon, we got the pogo nip and the frost all settled on the oh, ramp. Yeah. And the next day we walk out and people are ice skating in their shoes and everybody's laughing and thinking it's fun. I'm like, yeah, so I got a question. <laughs> I can't let these jets taxi yet. So we had to wait for the sun to come out and that to melt. And they're literally like Mike Fantasy is talking about. He's the location manager, best in the business. He's on the phone with NASCAR because they have a big track dryer machine. Yeah, that goes over the track (laughs) after it rains. And it's in like Alabama. And he's like, well, what would it cost us to rent that for a day? And I would need it to travel today and be here tomorrow. He's asking me, like, can we get Harriers to fly over the ramp? I'm like, yeah, I don't don't think that's going to work. But that's a great idea. Um, And eventually, you know, the sun came out and that was free. You know, when the weather came down, we'd work around that. But yeah, Pacific Northwest up in uh, Whidbey, that was a great place to shoot. We used the Cascades. Mm -hmm. We were able to kind of invent our own low levels. So when you see the stuff in the movie, when you and I talk about the best low levels we've ever done in our lives, these are better because they're like the million dollar route that we all know and love, but it's off grid. And we'd fly around Tom and go, what about that? And I go, well, that's not really part of the range. It was part of the range, but it wasn't a route. And you go, well, we got to do that. It's perfect. I'm like, eh. Let's figure that out. So we'd talk to the Navy and we'd talk to the Park Service and we'd go down there in, in a helicopter first and we'd fly the route, make sure there's nothing down there. And then we'd do it in an L-39 and we'd put people like we're building a route, which we were, but it wasn't a route open to you know, right. the world. It was no tanned airspace closed. And then they'd film this amazing stuff. So, mm-hmm. yeah. So those are some of the challenges, you know, environmental and, and lodging. You bring 300 people to Whidbey. They or don't Fallon. have 300 BOQ rooms or Fallon. <laughs> so they're, they're buying like every hotel room in Fallon. Wow. We're filling a BOQ up. There was a lot of stuff. But I'll tell you, the people that do this for a living, they're amazing. I sure. Well, we only have X number of BOQ rooms. They're like, we've already rented every hotel room in Fallon and they just rent the whole hotel out. Okay. Logistically, that's one thing. But when you get there, it's not like it's a small footprint, right? This no, isn't huge. a mouse running around. This is an elephant. And I guess what I'm getting at is particularly there's one of the trailers where they're showing a little bit more of the behind the scenes where they show what looks like an F-18 taking off and doing the low transition over that little security building. Yeah. And it looks like it literally raises the roof kind of thing. <laughs> I mean, you guys are out there. Nice segue. So <laughs> that actually happened. Uh, yeah. So that was a guard shack that was built because we want to do low transition based on the sun angle on a certain runway. Well, there's nothing off the end of that runway. This is China Lake. China Lake. Okay. So off the end of that runway, there's nothing. So we go to the base here. We're like, hey, we want to build this fake guard shack just off the end of the runway. Here's the storyline. Here's what we're going to do. And so his one pitch was, okay, but you know, don't build it out of steel and stone and whatever, because if an airplane dribbles off the end, I want to wreck the building, not the airplane. So we go, okay. So they go out there and Mike and his crew and the construction guys go out, they frame this thing up and you can see it. I mean, it looks just like a guard shack. Funny story. I was driving, I had my Jeep. So I took all the top and the doors and stuff off when we were out there and I drove from the queue, the back way around this basically access road that they built. It wasn't there. I'm like, oh, I remember this road being here. <laughs> so I'm driving past. I'm like, well, guard shack. Why is there a guard shack at the end of the runway? And then, well, there's nobody here. Keep going. The next day I come in and, you know, all the site guys are like, uh, 
who drove on this road. We graded all this perfect. And I'm like, yeah, I don't know, but I'll look into that. Cause I was, you know, ripping down the road and then they built this thing, but it's got like cameras and signs. There's, you go in it, it's a guard shack. It's got a table and the clipboard and the chairs and the lights and the air conditioning. It had everything, but it was made to, if it had to like take a beating from an airplane and just fold up, but it was plywood and all this other stuff. So we go out the day before the scene where you see the concept airplane go over the top Mm -hmm. on the top of the Admiral. And I'm out there with Walleye Weiser, who was how I got permission to do the ultra low altitude stuff. Cause he's, you know, more time down low in a super Hornet than anybody in the world, right? Doing this yeah. multi-role, multi-tour Blue Angel thing. Can we just flesh that out real quick? So if people have gone to the Blue Angel air show, there's always like that sneak pass comes up the runway super low and fast. And then the announcer says, oh, that's the sneak attack capability of an F-18. So he was used to flying super low, super fast. Yeah. Okay. So the production company wanted to do some stuff really low. And I got approved down to hundred feet with fleet JOs to get lower per the Airbus. It was, we had to find a better solution that added some safety. Not like a Lieutenant can't do it at hundred feet. Certainly can't. But to give us a comfort level of, you know, we're going to be doing some unusual stuff. So I reached out to the Blue Angels, got a hold of Walleye, who was flying both airplanes because he was the transition guy from the Legacy to the Super Hornet. So he was the lead, got to know him, and we used him. The day before, we go out there, and it's really just a bunch of guys with iPhones, and we're filming. We do a little preamble like, okay, this one will be 100 feet at 450 knots with a pitch up to get the dust. And then he would do that. And then we go, okay, this one's going to be, you know, 60 feet at 600 knots or whatever. So we did 19 passes and most fun day of the movie. It was amazing. And I'm standing out there on the radio at the end and he's coming, you know, the last ones as you see in the film are really, really low and crazy, stupid, absurd fast. He's gone plaid, like ludicrous speed. <laughs> That's right. We do this 19 times. We take them all back to Joe Kaczynski, the director. We're like, all right, here's all the different angles and looks. That's what it looked like. So he picks kind of what he wants. We go out there the next day. Ed Harris is, you know, standing in front of the thing. We're getting ready to shoot. The sun's coming down. So they're trying to get the cameras ready. And I'm telling them, hey, the sun's coming down. And I have a 30 minute before sunset window. I'm not going to allow this jet to be down here in the dirt inside of 30 minutes. It's a Navy rig. And man, if something goes bad and it's inside of sunset and it's low altitude and we're filming it, like, so bottom line, you have one take. You got one chance to get this. Then the airplane's got to, it was a Blue Angel jet. It's got to go back to the air show circuit tomorrow. We're not ready. We're not ready. We're not ready. So I said, okay, well, tell you what, I got to push him. So recommend call action or whatever it is you Turn do on your camera, yeah, do your thing. <laughs> so I call Wally in. I'm like, all right, this is it. Last pass, bring the heat, you know, profile number seven. And uh, he comes in and I'm standing just in front of the camera, which is up on a big crane dolly thing. You know, he does this pass it. won't throw a number in there, but let's just say <laughs> low. a lot of people ducked. <laughs> it was a sneak pass from the air show. So he doesn't, he comes over the top. And as he comes over the top, like you see in the trailer, you see the roof of that thing come off and it hovers for a minute. And the backside of it being pulled by the shockwave of the airplane, you know, it's pulling up the dust and debris, tumbleweeds and the roof of this building. And I'm standing just outside frame of camera and I watch it come up and it was the time compression you always hear about. I watched it in slow motion and I'm seeing it come up and there's only one person that's going to kill and it's me. And I'm looking at it and I go, oh no. <laughs> and then it kind of hovers for a minute and it slams down really hard. And there's two stuntmen in there dressed like Navy security force guys. Uh-huh. And it's brilliant. The fluorescent lights smash down and crash all over them. And so their reaction is natural and priceless. <laughs> and Ed Harris, by the way, doesn't move a muscle. His The stand-in, his aide, that guy like dove into the ditch or something, and the stuntman, and everybody's scrambling for cover. And, and I'm just like, I'm alive. That's cool. 
So the thing slams down. He opened the trailer and I go, Joe, did you get that? And he goes, well, uh, yeah, yeah. I don't, I don't know if we can use it. it. It looks fake. And I'm like, well, it was real. So, and it's the only one you get recommend you use it. I said, just do a behind the scenes and talk about it later or show it in something. And we go up to the thing later and looked at it. The only thing that kept the roof on from coming over and taking out, well, probably me, the camera, the camera guy, and a couple of lighting guys, we hard morts for sure. <sighs> They ran power to this. So there was just the Romex cable going up the back that held that thing on. We went and looked at him like, so that little 220 cable is the only thing that kept this roof from coming off and killing us all. Wow. Yeah, it was a fascinating occurrence that was... Um, <laughs> I'm surprised it was Ed Harris and not someone, because all you see is the back of him. They could have found someone that, you know, looked like him yeah, standing there. But that guy's a stone cold killer. He, yeah. was, he was so cool. <laughs> I briefed him on it. I'm like, well, hey, Mr. Harris. He goes, oh, I'm just Ed. I go, all right, Ed. So I just did this 19 times yesterday. Didn't know the roof was only rated for 19 passes, not 20. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm talking to him like, yeah, you know, you can't wear the earplugs because they're filming, but it's going to be really loud and you'll feel a shock wave. So do your best to not move. And I could see him like almost getting bored. So I go, okay, good luck. And I walk away and I'm like, yeah, it's not going to work. He's going to freak out or dive into the bushes or something. And that guy stood there and took it. One take, didn't move a muscle. That guy was awesome. Fantastic. Well, I love his character in there. Yeah. He, uh, oh, he's great. <laughs> he's good stuff. What other complexity challenges did you have? I mean, again, this movie does a wonderful job of painting what FA-18 pilots do, Top Gun folks included, but even, like you said, fleet pilots. We heard from Kevin LaRosa last week on some of the briefs and flying next to the filming aircraft, but what else was hurting your head out there or what else did you have to deal with in some of these flying scenes? So, for example, one thing that kind of made me cautiously conservative was, so you're taking a fleet lieutenant who's in their 20s and you're putting him in an airplane with either the biggest movie star in the world or some very big and soon to be massive juggernaut movie star. Mm -hmm. like they're, and when this movie comes out, they're all movie stars, but this is going to be a supersonic launch platform for him. But for example, Tom, right? arguably most well-known biggest movie star in the world. And I'm putting him in the back of a jet with a young person, right? Who's a steely eyed killer and a naval aviator and right? So, trained, so you, right. And but, professional and so on. But I could see in my mind the chance, cause I didn't know all of these lieutenants personally and I didn't cherry pick anybody. It wasn't like, all right, Skipper, you give me 10 resumes and brief me on all these and I'll pick two. It was, I need four people tomorrow. They just got to have good judgment. They got to listen to me and they got to follow process and procedure. And I would get three random people that were just flight line lieutenants, standard, I won't say standard average, because there's nothing standard or average about Navy fleet lieutenants. Within that group, though. But within that group, they're just your Mark I motto lieutenant. But in my mind is, now what happens if, let's say Tom really wants some certain aspect of this to go down, and maybe it's not quite what I briefed, and it's lower, and it's whatever. And that didn't happen. You know, he's a pilot. And he and I had some one-on-one heart-to-hearts. I'm like, if you say it, and they do it, and it's not what I want. It's dangerous or bad. Like we're going to have a problem moving forward and the trust factor is going to break down. He's like, no, no, no. You're in charge of the airplanes. I got it. I will totally back you. But you put a young person in an airplane with biggest movie star in the world, for example, and you just never know what's going to happen. So I had some concerns about that. Every time we would brief, we'd get out of this whole big thing. I'm like, all right, I need to clear the room and I need to see just the Navy pilots. So everybody else would leave and I go, okay, was there anything said that you were uncomfortable with? Is there anything that you think is going to go sideways? I need you to know that if you are uncomfortable, you're being asked to do something that is not in keeping with our limits that we put out there. You got to stop it. You're in charge. You're the mission commander. And I will back you hundred percent. If you go outside those lines, there's nothing I can do to help you. Cause, right. and one of the things I told a lot of these lieutenants was 
especially like the stuff we did at the boat. I'd bring them aside and I'm like, the things that you're about to do for this, if you do them after today, you will lose your wings. This is a very controlled environment. It's massively supervised. We are very deliberate about how we did certain things, maneuvers, like the aileron roll off the cat. We obviously didn't do that. So we did a low pass down landing area and we went right into the mechanics. Okay, you're going to be at this speed. You're going to tag blower. You go to min range, you'll pop up, you'll bunt to slick the wings up because right. the flight controls, Leading the flaps and stuff flaps, come out. Yeah. And the F-18, if you give it some forward, it, they'll clean up a little bit so you have a cleaner wing to make a crisp roll. And I only want it above this altitude. So none of this bad stuff ever happened, but I felt I had to say, like, I have your back, so you follow the rules. Stay within these guardrails. Yeah, yeah. yeah, don't hit the bumpers. <laughs> yeah. So that was something that, you know, it ended up being a non-issue and everybody played by the rules. And even, you know, Tom was totally on board with the safety thing, which, you know, he wants something. What I gave him, what he wanted, wasn't always necessarily the same thing. Mm-hmm. Like, can we do it at a foot? Well, no, we can't do it at a foot. We could do it low, but we can't do it at a foot at 900 knots because that would look better, right? Right. I know his vision and what he wanted. And then I was the, well, that to me is, I don't think that's the way we do it because, you know, we might hurt somebody or break something or scare somebody. So let's look at it another way. And he and Kevin LaRosa and I and Mike Fitzmaurice, the aerial guy, we'd all get together and go, okay, well, what about this? Because they don't know the capabilities and limitations of the airplane or the pilots. I'd go, yeah, that's not going to work, but let's think about this another way. And we would come up with something that, you know, I think when you see the movie, you know, like split in the section in the vertical, right? Mm-hmm. We didn't actually do that. And they were like, well, can we just we'll go between them? They're 30 <laughs> feet apart. I'm like, yeah, I don't, I don't think that's okay. You can do each of them separately. So we did, yeah, we did something first and they were yeah. very close and it was very cool. And we actually did the inverted thing. We use walleye when there's the inverted thing that you see in the movie. No, I don't want to spoil it, but you know, he's, he's yeah, flying, by now, flying the airplane. It. Oh yeah, that's yeah, right. Yeah. He's flying the airplane inverted, you know, in his blue angel profile. So that was cool. Those were some of the uh, challenges of doing that. So on this podcast and past episodes recently, we had folks who helped with the first movie back in the 80s. And one thing that they talked about is the initial script that they viewed was, in their minds, terrible, ridiculous. Uh, These are some words they threw out. I'm curious, how involved were you, if at all, in the actual development of the storyline? Or was it pretty well suitcase and then let's just go execute it? Because it sounds like it changed a lot in Top Gun. And with Top Gun Maverick, I wonder if that was similar. I was on the other staff, and I remember being in the room when they briefed Admiral Shoemaker about the concept and what they were going to do, and that was Captain J.J. Cummings. He did a huge lift with working with Joe Kaczynski, Chris McCoy, the writer, to get... I don't have a full background, because I didn't see the original script. I saw the more mature stuff and worked on that. My understanding was the original iterations weren't quite what the Navy was looking for. I doubt... You know, terrible, bad, awful, like those terms. And I obviously didn't see the first movie script in its infancy, but I think it was just something that the Navy needed a couple turns on. So Yank worked with them and then Chaser came on board as a civilian guy representing Paramount and they did a lot of meetings up there. And I came on at the point of starting to film production. So the core plot content script was fairly well set. I was there tweaking some stuff, like when they had the comms and the E2s, and some of it was okay, some of it wasn't. We don't know, we don't know. So I called up to Fallon, to the schoolhouse, and I'm like, hey, send me one of your Hawkeye instructors. Let's go over this comm and make sure we don't put sensitive classified stuff in there, but let's do the comm. So we had one of the Hawkeye controllers came down, and I'm like, okay, talk me through, you know, exactly in this scenario, what would say, and she gave me the whole thing. I'm like, okay, do it so I hear it like you're doing it. She does it, and I'm like, 
hey, Joe, come here, listen to this. I'm like, there's your answer. There's your audio. Shoot her. So they put a camera in the back of the E2 and they got all the lights right and then filmed her and one of the other instructors doing the calls on the radio. So I was doing, we'll say, tweaks to dialogue and, okay. then, you know, some plot things like they got to figure out what happens with the jet, the kind of the crisis thing in the middle of the movie. And, well, how do we do that? And it's, it ended up being the bird strike. And, right. and that was a, a safe way to get, you know, act to God, not some pilot error thing. We did that to make sure that there wasn't anything that painted the Navy in a bad light, made us look like fools or anything like that. So Yank had the lion's share of doing the original work up with them. And then I was doing rudder along that, working with Chris McQuarrie, the writer. Fine tweaks. The E2 part, um, first off, glad that they got a little bit of the limelight and i'm sure that community enjoys mm-hmm. it as well but when i was watching it i thought well this is almost too perfect <laughs> you know, i was like it was very accurate i felt like it was just good as far as what well just like the comms like oh, the, what well, she yeah. was saying to them and now that yeah because of what we did it was and, right from the school had, had her do it and it was a schoolhouse instructor a hawkeye weapon school instructor so fantastic and you said earlier, you know, you're, hey, he wants it at one foot, 900 knots. Like, no, nah, that's not how it really works. Tongue in cheek, but yeah. Of course. But I guess the point I want to make is at some point early on, you all, or they did, I don't know, decided, look, we want this to be real. In fact, I remember years ago, yeah. you calling me and based on a review of one of the trailers that I did, we had a conversation you're like, hey, Jello, it's important that all the flying scenes are real. And so I guess what I'm getting at is at some point, if Tom or Jerry or whoever really wanted something specific, they could have made it. It just wouldn't have been real, right? You could have made it yeah. on a computer. You could have made it yeah. with a green screen. You could, And so those decisions were made too. Yeah, totally. I mean, so very little CGI in this movie. And some of it's obvious, like you'll see things, you go, we don't have those or that doesn't exist. And very, very, very minor stuff. But to your point, they could have saved a ton of money doing this. So think about it from Tom's perspective, right? 1986. He was already a big star and up and coming. Mm-hmm. And then he originally, as I hear it from Jerry, he was going to turn down this role. He thought it would put him in a typecast thing. It wasn't going to help him. Jerry's got him a ride with the Blue Angels. He got out of the airplane, came back. He's like, all right, maybe I could do that. That's cool. And arguably it was beneficial to his career. So now you think about where that movie went in the 80s. It's iconic, right? Oh, I mean, yeah. if you want to sit here across the studio and tell me that it had nothing to do with you getting in the Navy, then I'll look you in the eye and call you a liar. Because <laughs> it did. If you watched the movie and then you later landed on boats in jets and went to Top Gun, you cannot divorce the two. Like, it had some impact, some effect. And then look at, like, look at how many people wore flight jackets in the 80s and sunglasses, you know, plumbers and Cub Scouts and whatever. Like, everybody had the Maverick <laughs> stuff, right? Yeah. The music was iconic. Like, it was this huge thing and very dangerous, like third rail. Don't mess with it. Don't screw it up. So it came up, my understanding, several times over the years. Should we do it? Should we not do it? Should we do right. it? Should we not do it? And Tom was kind of like, I don't know. It's got to be right. And I don't think the story's right. The technology hasn't caught up to be able to do this right. When I was the CEO in Fallon in, I think it was 2012, I remember two great big business jets come in to the transit line. And one's Jerry Buckheimer's and one's Tom Cruise. And they're out there and they're looking at the flight line, they're getting tours and it's, they're scoping it to see, mm-hmm. are we going to do this? And then project got tabled for, you know, quite a few years, obviously like seven or eight. And then what got to in the end was, okay, I'm going to do it, but I'm not doing a bunch of green screen. I'm not doing a bunch of CGI. He goes, if we're going to do this, it's got to be real. People have to be in the jets. And I think people were thinking, you're crazy. How are you going to do that? The Navy's never going to support that. The Navy can't support it. 
like we talked about, we came out of the, thanks to the efforts of Admiral Shoemaker and Miller and Chaser and all the 40 shop and the people that do the readiness and the funding and all the great sailors on the flight line doing maintenance. We got out of that hole. So now we're like a full ready combat capable force at time of shooting. And we were able to not only continue to do combat readiness and lethality, but, oh, by the way, let's shoot a movie too without impacting, taking anything out of hide. Now, had we gone to some huge, you know, World War III scenario, the movie would have been cold and we would have sent all the jets over and done our thing, obviously. But yeah, so his piece was the only way that I'm going to do this movie is I want to be in the jet. I want the actors in the jet. Have you seen the piece where he's interviewed and he goes, you can't act G's on the face. Unless right. you're watching the James Corden one where he's squishing his face all around, which was hilarious, by the way. <laughs> you know, he says, you can't act that stuff. You got to really do it. An interesting conversation he and I had when we started was he goes, yeah, so I want to do this stuff. You know, I want to pull a lot of G's. And I'm like, well, you know what, Tom? You, you really just need to pull like four. It'll show you slump down. You'll see the vape on the wingtips. It's going to look cool. And he goes, no, if in the movie we're doing, you know, whatever the script calls for in the G's, I want to do that in the airplane. And I go, yeah, okay. I don't think you need that, but people pay a lot of money. See your face a certain way. It's going to look all goofy. <laughs> and he goes, but what would your face look like? And I'm like, it'd look all goofy like it does now, but goofier. <laughs> and he goes, uh, well, that's what I want to do. And I go, okay, <laughs> big movie star. Let's go try that. And they did it. And amazingly it works. So when you watch all these actors in the airplane, they're max performing the airplane. Mm-hmm. They're seven and a half G's and you could see in their face. And there's, you know, the stuff that you won't see are people, you know, taking little naps and some other stuff. <laughs> yeah. So he could have done this, him and Jerry and, and yeah. Joe could have done this. I'm sure much cheaper. I don't know how much CGI costs, probably a lot less than flying a bunch of hornets around, but he goes, yeah, everybody would know it's fake and I'm not going to make a movie like that because I want it to be as good or better than the last one. And can you imagine if this movie were to be a disaster or a flop, nobody went to see it. Like that would be a swan song for him. He'd still yeah. go on and make all the missions and be a huge movie star and successful, <laughs> but you wouldn't want to go out on, you made a great movie in the eighties and you screwed it up on this one. Yeah. And the way that it was done per his vision and Joe, the director and Jerry was, this is going to be a huge success. Everybody's going to love it. It's going to clear a gazillion dollars. Everybody's going to run out and join the Navy. Fighter pilots won't be able to buy a beer at the ball game when they do the flyovers or it's a meal. Be, or a meal. Yeah. Just got to make sure you wear your Navy stuff. To I hope the Jags not listen to your podcast. Yeah. It's, uh, yeah. it's because of the way it was done yeah. is why it's going to enjoy the massive global success that will. And I'm absolutely confident that it will. I think yeah. everybody's going to win from this. I know some people that won't win from this are adversaries. They're, they're not going to be very happy when they see it. Yeah. But. But you mentioned it earlier, right? When you make Top Gun as a starting point in 86, it's sort of almost a thesis. Like, hey, we got this idea. Let's see what it does. When you revisit it later, of course, now there's all this, I don't want to call it baggage, but there's, don't screw it up. We all love this movie. If you're going to do it, you got to do it right. And so you touched on all that. But just now, as you were talking about working with Tom Cruise and some of these others, so you've been a fleet pilot. You've been a CO. You've done a lot of things in your career. You've worked with some really interesting people, frankly. Now, Hollywood stereotypes us a certain way that I spend part of my podcast trying to refute, (laughs) but you've worked with people like me who have egos and qualms. And if you put us on a boat together for a long time, things get interesting. I'm curious what it's like to work with actors. I've never done it. And certainly big name actors. I mean, are they real life people like, you know, putting on pants one leg at a time, or is it just a different thing that I can't even imagine? So yes and no. And I'll tell you, I can only speak to these actors because maybe they're a different breed, but I'll tell you. So great question. I went into this with a preconceived notion and it was part of my, I'm really not looking forward to this aspect of it. 
I'll do this for the Navy because the Navy wants me to do it. And I love the Navy and what it stands for. And I love our brother and sisterhood and I love all this stuff. So I'll do it because there's nobody else available or whatever. But I said, I'll do it for the Navy. But man, I just, I'm really not looking forward to all these. I think in my mind, it was uptight, asshole, greater than now type things. And I'll tell you, man, I was so wrong because what an amazing group of people. And, you know, whether you go from Tom to the most junior production assistant and everybody in between totally blew my stereotype. Wonderful people. There's a great story about Ed Harris. We're out in Channel Lake. He's a big baseball guy. And the production assistant on the set is, think of it as like the duty driver or the whatever, the think of some horrible job in the squadron or the staff that like you just, you have the worst errands that you got to run. And they're young, they're trying to get into Hollywood and they're doing all these errands like, hey, such and such wants you to go get two triple soy vegan lattes at 214 degrees Fahrenheit exactly, but then dump them in the plant on your way over here and then throw the cups away. Like, and they would have to go do whatever that ridiculous errand is. Like it wouldn't be that, but it would, whatever it was, they had to go do it. And they're probably not paid very much. So here's Ed Harris and there's a young production assistant who's early twenties and probably just really happy to have his name associated with the movie because that'll probably get him some other business and there's Ed waiting to you know do a scene and Ed's pretty cool, man. He's crusty and sounds like a master chief. And he goes, yes. uh, what's your name, son? You know, like the kid's going, oh my, he's talking, hey, to, me. talking to me. <laughs> I'm, am I in trouble? And he goes, relax, kid. What's your name? Mark, sir. And he's, uh, you know, this back to, I'm just Ed. You like baseball? I do. And he reaches into his bag and he grabs two gloves and a ball. And he goes, you want to toss the ball for a little bit? I'm getting bored just standing here. So they go to the edge of the hangar and he chucks the ball with the kid and he just talks to him for, you know, five, six minutes. And then somebody runs over, Mr. Harris, you're needed on the set. Yeah. All right. Well, sorry, I got to go to work. But it was like such a humanizing thing. Yeah. And there's a bunch of stories like that. So they were all really, I was super impressed with them as people. And I'll tell you this, like they're all in it because it's their job. And I'm sure everybody on the Paramount side is going to make a ton of money and they're going to have career launches off this and all these things. But my impression from working with every single one of them from cast to crew, Tom, right down to, you know, Mark, the PA was they were not in it for the money and to hitch their wagon to the star. They were in it for America. And, you know, I've heard that from Robert K, assistant director, helped as we were working our way through navigating this Blue Angel 75th documentary and they're trying to find some gear that was used in the first movie, he's like, all of us are in to help you in any way you need to help the Blue Angels because it's good for the Navy, it's good for America. We love all those things. So, you know, we're, we're not billing you for hours. We're just going to help out. And that's how everybody was. The actors, I was sure they were going to be all stuck up and needy and <laughs> annoying. And they weren't. You know, it took a little while, a dog sniffing tails to kind of figure out like mm-hmm. who people are, break down the barriers. But, you know, for example, the week of the premiere, so they all come in on Sunday, the big premiere is on Wednesday, and I got to be friends with Glenn Powell's family, because great Texas family, they're just wonderful people, love them to death. He puts his family somewhere in all of his movies as extras, or sometimes, you know, there's a little speaking role here. It's, It's really great. I love when he's, you know, making sure his mom's in the right place, so she's on camera. It's sweet, and she's amazing. So I called his mom that week, because I figure he's doing all this they're, they all have media engagements. So every day up to the premiere, they're doing interviews, they're doing all this stuff. So I calls mom, I'm like, hey, you guys, the whole family and extended families in town. I'm like, hey, why don't you guys come over Monday night? We'll cater some food. We'll have a great time, sit by the pool. And she goes, oh, great. Yeah, I think Glenn's doing his thing. I'm like, yeah, I mean, he'd come if he wants to, but I'd like to have you guys over because my family had met them before on the set. And cool. So we love them to death. I get a text from Glenn Powell, who plays Hangman, and he goes, uh, hey, 
just finishing up interview and a photo shoot. So like to come by, I'm like, Oh, perfect timing. I'm just finishing up an interview and a photo shoot too. Come on by. And he comes over with a number of the other cast members. And I said, Oh, by the way, in my house, there's no movie stars. It's just friends and family. So get your own drinks, get your own food. You got no status here. <laughs> uh, and they came over and they, we all spent a night of just having fun yeah, and being, people. being regular people. Yeah, and uh-huh. we had a great time. So like have gotten to become friends with him and, you know, miles is great. Jay, Danny, Greg, they're all really down to earth people or they're acting and they're all jerks, but (laughs) I'm pretty sure they're legit and I'm pretty sure they're really cool or they're the best actors ever because I really like them all. It was designed to fly fast in that treetop level carrying 24 nuclear weapons. Today, it bristles with smart bombs and guided missiles. The B-1 bomber, called the bone by those who fly and maintain it, is the most heavily armed bomber ever built. Sleek and powerful, the bone remains a mainstay of American air power 50 years after its first flight. Hey everyone, this is Ken Katz, call sign Primetime. And my book, The Supersonic Bone, A Development and Operational History of the B-1 Bomber, tells the true story of this magnificent airplane. In this book, you'll read stories told to me by those who were there and see lots of great photos of the bone. Anyone with an interest in modern military aircraft will enjoy reading The Supersonic Bone. Available through the usual online retailers and aviation booksellers. Pick up your copy today. And then you look at Jerry Bruckheimer, juggernaut, right? If you know anything about Hollywood, you know his name. He's massive. He's got a thing in his office. It's called the the Billion Dollar Wall or something. It's all the posters like Days of Thunder and Parts of the Caribbean and Top Gun. There's this one wall in the break room. It's the Billion Dollar Wall. And he's made so many movies since then. Nicest guy you'll ever meet in your life. He's Hmm. just a very nice, genuine person. Really, really nice working with him. Joe Kaczynski, the director... He hasn't made a ton of movies, I think, and I'm probably butchering this. Joe, don't get mad at me if I get this wrong, but I think your average Hollywood director makes a bunch of commercials and then makes a bunch of B-roll movies and then makes a bunch of like assistant directs, bigger movies and takes decades to get anywhere where they finally get a, a movie that makes $28 million. I think this is Joe's fourth movie. And, wow. you know, look at, he did Only the Brave and Oblivion, like big movies that did really well. And this is going to be a massive blockbuster So you want to talk about a guy exploding out of the gate and doing great things and brilliant director and just a super guy, really nice. Yeah, the whole process. And then you talk about the crew, the crew, like assistant directors, Scott Robertson, Robert Kay, and Mike Fantasy's a location guy and Spencer Taylor, like all these names that your listeners don't know, but you'll see them in the credits. Boy, talk about the greatest Americans. I thought of them as the chief's mess, right? They're very down to earth. They're the hardest working people. They're committed to what they do. And they're all, I would say they're the top gun of their industry. Like they are as good as it gets. Hmm. You know, Claudia Miranda Lighting, Academy Award, Jan Pascal, Set Dressing Academy Award. I bet there's more Academy Awards that come out of this for things like location and lighting and sound because it's all amazing. But long driveway to a tiny house, but my stereotype was absolutely shattered. That was the big takeaway for me is I made a lot of great friendships. I love those people. And you're going to see a bunch of them tonight going up to the premiere. And uh, we're all going, staying across the street at the hotel. We rented a back room. We're all going to get the band back together and have a bunch of cocktails after the show tonight. So, Because I haven't seen most of these people in two and a half years. So, yeah, they're all great. I'm a huge fan of all the people that worked on this movie. They were fantastic. If I had them in the studio here, you think they would reciprocate having worked with you and the Navy and uh, the pilots and the crew? And 
I'm picturing Mike Fantasy right now rolling his eyes and saying, yeah, well, you know, I guess there was nobody else available, so we had to work with him. <laughs> You've already beat him to that anyway. Yeah, as far as working with the Navy, I've heard that countless times. Good. And, you know, you see that on their social media posts and their interviews. They go, it was just such an honor and a thrill to work with the Navy, that you know, the entire Navy writ large, on the ship with the sailors. I had the cast in the galley on USS Theodore Roosevelt serving meals one night. Oh, I'm cool. like, hey, it'd be great if you come down here. And they're all young kids. And that was a huge hit. And they all loved it. Glenn and Monica, Jay went down there and they're slinging roast beef and cake and Chicken stuff. adobo. Chicken adobo, yeah. <laughs> Every single person, like Tommy Harper, the producer, Joe, the director, Jerry, the other night at the after party was telling me, boy, I really enjoyed working with the Navy. It was a fantastic group of individuals. And so I think from that perspective, you know, you take the me out of it. And I think the working with the Navy part was really good that they liked it because it was a great partnership. I mean, yeah. it was two large, diverse complicated, important organizations Mm -hmm. working on an incredibly challenging thing to a common goal. And we met in the middle. We resolved any, you know, challenges that we had through leadership and talking and all the standard things that you and I have learned over the past 30 years. And we got it to finish line. I think the product speaks for itself and it's a fantastic success for everybody in every way. Do you count yourself as among the actors? You have a speaking role, right? Oh, yeah. <laughs> they had filmed a scene down here with a bunch of Navy extras. They were going to use... We're talking about the... The bar scene, yeah. right? There was... Which they built that bar, right? They did, yeah. I took them to Fallon, and I took them to the I-Bar, because we were scoping location. I'm like, well, you got to go at least these two bars. Yeah. Uh, they didn't want to go to the East Coast just for a scout, because there's, you know, some bars there, and there's some bars overseas. I'm like, these are two on the West Coast, easily accessible to you, that I think that you should look at to get a flavor of... So I took them to Fallon... Uh, Joe and Tommy and some of the actors during Airwing Fallon because I wanted to see the whole thing. I'm like, this is how it's got to look. And then uh, I go, Tommy, you should ring the bell and you know promote the movie. And he goes, well, what's ringing the bell mean? I go, it means you buy everybody a drink. And full packed house, right? <laughs> Just came out of the yellow fee. And uh, he goes, what's that going to cost? I'm like, oh, here, probably 2000 bucks. And he goes, uh, well, why don't you ring the bell? I'm like, because I'm married, dude. I want to stay married. I'm not ringing the bell. I get divorced as soon as that hits the internet. He goes, uh, well, use my card. I'm like, oh, hell yeah, I'm ringing the bell. So I rang the bell and oddly, I broke the striker because when you're not thinking about how mad your wife's going to be when you're ringing the bell, you ring it with a lot more you know, zest and it came off and the bartender and Kelly goes, well, I've never seen that happen before. I'm like, I've never used an American Express titanium card before. So uh, we took them to these bars and they looked at it and then they built that bar on the beach. They were going to use Hollywood extras and ship them down. I'm like, nope, it's got to be Navy people. We have plenty of Navy people here. No yeah. reason to put some, you know, aspiring background person in there. Sorry, this is a movie about the Navy. I'm only going to support Navy people. So we went through all this stuff to get, it was great. We had all these actual service members and their families and Guido was sitting at one of the bar tables. And ironically, a ton of the stuff that's in there is from my house. Like, Fallon Oak Club, my tail that's up there, my parting CO gift, the, uh-huh. the tail that lights up, the Amram over the bar. Like I had them truck all the stuff in and <laughs> send a truck to my house to get all my Navy stuff. <laughs> yeah, they filmed all this stuff with Navy people. And then I can't remember, it was like a lighting thing or there was a sound issue later. And they're like, oh God, we got to reshoot this stuff. And I'm like, well, it's a good thing we mapped out where all the stuff was. We'll just build the thing back up and we'll bring all those people in. They go, no, we got to do it on the set, on the soundstage in, in Hollywood because the thing's already up there. I'm like, okay, well, I'll get a hold of all the Navy people. And they go, yeah, we can't. There's some union rules, right? Like, I got away with it on the base because I said, you're going to use Navy people. But up there, there's union stuff. And they go, we can't pay them to come up. We can't give them hotel rooms. And so we'll give them the 100 bucks a day. It's like a 12-hour day to be an extra for 100 bucks. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, And they got to be there all week. So we kind of went through the motions, and it was just unfeasible. So then they go, okay, well, here's all the extras. And we got a couple Navy people up there that I could get a hold of. 
and my wife who was up there with me and they go what what you put her in there behind you nice. okay and then they said uh, hey we're gonna have you do the scene where you do the drive-by on tom when they ring the bell yeah thanks old man. Went, okay. <laughs> yeah hey much appreciated pal and originally, unfortunately, somebody else who has more legacy of the film, but they wanted to do it a different way. And they're like, well, it's you or some extra that's up here because we can only use X number of Navy people and, and you're it, or we can use an extra, some random Hollywood guy. And I'm like, well, okay, sure, I'll do it. Um, yeah, so I got my three seconds of fame that you can barely see me because I go whipping by. And you go by pretty fast. Yeah, oh, totally. Yeah. I think that was by design. They're like, we don't want to see you or really hear from you, but thanks for all your help on the movie. Here's your three words. I thought I saw the orange patches, though, of the VFC yeah, 13 yeah. Saints. You got to uh, represent, man. got to shout yeah, out for the Saints. Yeah. And you went by, and I thought, wait, was that Ferg? Yeah, I think it was. But. <laughs> so I didn't tell anybody because I assumed, in fact, that morning of the premiere in San Diego, everybody came in, the Secretary of the Navy and Tom and all them were in the DV terminal over at North Island. And Jerry walks up and he goes, uh, well, what do you think of your cameo in the movie? Is your family excited? I'm like, I haven't told him. Why haven't you told him? And I go, because I didn't want you to wake up this morning and have the thought, the movie is one second too long. What do I cut? <laughs> so I've been totally quiet about it because I figured it would get cut at some point. He goes, oh, no, it's in there. It's in there forever. So, nice. so I haven't told anybody, but obviously people have seen it. So, yeah, it was fun. It yeah. was uh, interesting. You know, for one dirty part of podcasting is you get people on YouTube, especially, who like to voice their opinions. And sometimes you get different things that are just hard to ignore. People were complaining about the whole postponement thing for uh, COVID. Is that something, I mean, you're interested in discussing at all? And I'm not saying we're going to quiet everybody down. At this point, it's all over anyway. And there's other things that I'm not going to ask you because frankly, let's just not waste anyone's time. People always find something to complain about, but what was the decision, right? It was going to be out in May of 20 and the world turned upside down. And so... So obviously the initial release was right in the heart of COVID, right? Yeah. We're not flying. People are in masks. Everybody's hiding in their house. You know, the boogeyman's here. Right. To be fair, when I say they're all in it for America, but this is their livelihood, right? And people put a lot of money against this movie and their time, their times were something. So to send this out to empty theaters would have been counterproductive economically to not only Paramount, but we need this to be seen on big screens because when you watch a Blu-ray someday, you're like, yeah, it's not as good as being in the movie theater with a thousand people. So it wouldn't have done anybody any good to release it to empty theaters. And I think for a while, like you couldn't even go to a movie theater if I remember. And then it was starting to open up a little bit and it opened up domestically on, I think the second slide, it was gonna be November or something, but overseas it was all shut down. Well, back to doing it for America is great, but it's an investment, right? So you put X hundreds of million dollars against a movie. It really needs to make something for it to be viable. Otherwise it's a business. Okay. So all these theaters across the world were either limited capacity or closed. So the decision was made at a level far outside of mine and industry that, yeah, you know, that's probably not going to get our return on investment. Once it comes out, you can't like, well, no, when you guys lift your COVID stuff, we'll send it over to the overseas market. You know, everybody's probably seen a bootleg by then or something. So they needed to fill, I think the goal, as I heard it from Jerry or somebody was, we need to fill every seat in the world for this movie, like every seat. (laughs) And if you look now, like go on after this and look at Fandango or something and find a thing for Friday night. First of all, there won't be any tickets. They've been sold out for weeks, but it'll be like one of these big 16 plex theaters and the movie will run in about half of them. And it just goes back to back to back from noon until midnight. I mean, that's a lot of people seeing the movie sold out. So I think it was unfortunate. It was unavoidable. But it was the right decision. And, you know, people that were getting mad, oh, I can't believe it's delayed again. Well, do you want us to just roll it in your hometown so you can see it? Or do you want to wait until it's the proper, you saw the stuff that we did for the rollout, right? Walk off home run. 
massive spectacle, the landing helicopter on Midway. He went over to Vincent and he engaged with the sailors. It was perfect. It was the perfect opening. I don't know anything about openings because it's the only one I've done, but man, (laughs) I have to imagine if this is the unicorn, the pinnacle Top Gun experience, as good as it gets, that was it. And that wouldn't happen last November or last May or any of those times. So no, and then uh, as far as the, you know, people picking it apart thing, you know, that's going to happen, right? There's always going to be some guy lives in his mom's basement and he's freeze framing it. And he's like, oh, look, I found something wrong with the ribbons. And uh, look, I get clickbait and, and they're going to do that. Like that actually happened to me. There was some stuff that was done before I was brought on. It was done by some consultant, private entity. Was it horrible? No, it was just wrong. You're talking sh- about like the yeah, metals the ribbons. ribbons there was that, some article that said that Navy technical advisor is an effing idiot. So would have appreciated a heads up, couldn't have commented, but like, come on, man, you're prior military. Why don't you just call me and I'll say, can't comment, but trust me, I can tell you in a couple weeks. So there was some stuff that was wrong and it is pretty wrong. There's like one of them's two of the same right next to each other. Like it was just silly. So I show up on the set to, I don't know, it was Val Kilmer or somebody. I'm like, what's that? What are you wearing? It's all messed up. Well, let me go fix that. Let me go to wardrobe and we'll, we'll just switch these around. We'll fix it. And then the director's like, no, we already filmed some stuff. Nobody will notice. Of course, clearly people noticed, but I'll tell you like when Chaser and I did Maverick's uniform and his ribbon rack and it's appropriate for quote Maverick, right? Mm -hmm. He's kind of a unique guy, shot down some MIGs. He's been around for a while. So his rack makes sense. I built the jackets for the Airbus and Nautic because they wanted the green sage jackets with a NASCAR, you know, patches all over them. Right. So I went to wardrobe and I go, Hey, I need I can get to these jackets from the system. You guys have to pay for them or you can get them out in town, whatever, but I need a bunch of Navy patches. So can you get me as many patches to do with Naval aviation from like 1975 to present day? Just give me as many as you can. I'll make it work. So the next day FedEx at my trailer and there's this gigantic (laughs) forklift pallet of 50,000. I'm like, Ooh, what are these? Oh, so this is every Naval aviation patch that was available for purchase on the planet. So we teased all these out and I went like with Pack Fleet Actuals, his bio, and I looked, okay, he did this, he was a Hawaiian adversary, then he was blah, 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 blah. So I took the timeline. So like on those, they're perfect. If you look at the jackets, if guy in basement freeze frames and looks at them, mm-hmm. you'll see that like that air wing was on that ship for that deployment. And then he went Hornet to Tomcat or he flew A4s as an adversary. I spent days building the story of those jackets because that was kind of my homage to like, well, we got some messed up uniforms, but these are going to be perfect. So those are kind of cool. And then like John Hamm is the air boss. I think he gets to keep his and Charles Parnell plays Warlock, who's not an actual. So we built those jackets and they yeah. got to keep them. But that was kind of a fun, like I'm telling a story with getting these on there. And then I just hand them to somebody, they sew them on. Yeah. Well, it's funny because it's something that probably... of the viewers don't think anything of. They just see an actor wearing a uniform like, okay, that's what it is. It's clickbait. Right. And to a degree, I'm not living in my mom's basement, but, you know, the Fighter (laughs) Pilot podcast, one thing I try to do is kind of our shtick of the show is, hey, you know, some of the stuff that comes out of Hollywood, how real is it? And I think there are people that are military aviation enthusiasts that appreciate that. Yeah. I remember the very first trailer, the very first scene, I'm like, that dude's low. I bet that had yeah. to be a blue angel. Yeah. I had no idea at the time that it was. I think Guido, when he came on, on his episode talking about their transition, talked about uh, while I'd be involved with that. So you said that earlier. Well, that was how I got there because we're trying to do low transition. Tom wants the stuff to go 30 feet and below. And I go into the air boss. I'm like, hey, sir, we want to do this stuff at 30-ish feet. And the answer was something along the lines of, I don't even know why you're in my office asking me that stupid <laughs> question. Get out. So I go into Caesar's office and I'm like, yeah, the boss said no. 
And he goes, what'd you think he was going to say? And I said, well, I kind of thought it was that, but you know, it never hurts to ask. And he goes, yeah, maybe don't ask those questions anymore. So then I call Guido. We're doing the low transition scene over that one with Ed Harris. Mm-hmm. And I'm thinking about using a fleet lieutenant. I'm like, well, it's just a low tranny, right? So it's really a takeoff that you are held down a little longer. So I'm not putting a guy at 20 or 30 feet for several miles. Like you see where Wally's at 20 or 30 feet for several miles. Is that Bravo 20, by the way? Yeah. Okay. So I call Guido up and I'm like, hey man, I'm trying to figure out how to get a safe and measured risk management approach to getting a lieutenant to get them to do something that we would normally put them in hack for. But do you have for your six, do you have for the lead solo, the, like a syllabus, there's gotta be some way that how you work towards the low transition. I'm sure you started on your feet and then you go down. And we start talking and he goes, yeah, so why, what are you doing? I told him it was for this transition scene for the movie. And I, yeah, we really want to do this other stuff down low, but I, I can't get the boss below hundred feet. And he goes, well, you know, walleye is the super blue transition guy. He's got more time down low than like any dude alive. So, uh, I didn't know Wally at the time. Great dude, great friends with him now. And I call him up. I'm like, Hey man, I'm Ferg. I'm making the movie. And this is what I'm trying to do. I'm trying to get the syllabus for this low transition, but I'm also trying to see if I can get some allowances to get down a little bit below hundred feet with some Mark one motto, flight line JOs. And his comment was, well, here's my thought on that. So I've done it a lot. He replied through the Blue Angels after the incident in Tennessee, I think. And he goes, uh, here's the thing. We spent a lot of time to get there safely. And if you have somebody doing that, that can't hold a conversation the way we're talking now at a resting heart rate, they got no business being there. And I said, okay, well, how long would that take to do? And he goes, uh, take a long time. And there's a lot of process involved. And he goes, you know, I'd be happy to do it. I go, well, we got to use a super horn. And he's like, well, I'm the transition guy. So I'm flying both airplanes right now. I said, oh, well, let me go talk to the air boss. So I go back in there, tuck my tail. Hey, sir, I think I got an elegant solution to this. We talk it out. And he goes, yeah, okay, do that. So he gave me 50 feet. Then we eventually worked down to something, yeah. you know, sub 50 feet. Raise the roof height. Yeah. So we talked with Kevin LaRosa last week about the flying and some of the VFX that took place after. Why did it need to be a super if you're going to turn it into, we call it the Dark Star or whatever that thing is? But So the scene in Bravo 20 where he's where oh, Maverick is rolling okay. in the target. Gotcha. So that's actually, yeah. we camered up through Navier. We camered all these jets. were internal cameras looking back, looking forward. We put some external mounts. So there's, I thought we were talking about the uh, takeoff over. That was Harris. actually Blue Angel number five. That was and, like, no kidding, blue airplane? Yeah. Oh, wow. That's cool. Yeah. Okay. It was yeah, one, of their, the one, one of their spares off season. They yeah. sent that out there so that he was okay. comfortable in doing the thing. And then we worked into flying Nautic and 122 jets yeah. down in the low altitude scene with these external mounts. We had stuff on the pylon. We had stuff on the belly looking forward, looking back past the stinger. There was one up on top. All that is real footage. I mean, he's oh, down yeah. there. Yeah. Oh, we did this and... huge engineering effort with yeah. Navair, which is very expensive for Paramount. I was amazed at the cost data to go, hey, I want to put one on station seven and it's going to be this camera box and this is the size and the weight. They're like, well, we can get to it outside of our normal duties. So, you know, we got people who come in on Saturdays and do this other stuff and we'll get it to you. And they're doing like wind tunnel testing and computer modeling because you can't have things falling off. And then when we put the cameras in the airplane, it had to be... So Tom's like, make it limit of aircraft. We looked at, well, what if we get to 400 knots and 5Gs? He goes, I don't want to do 400 knots, 5Gs. I want to do 600 knots and 7.5Gs. So the issue is if you had to eject, what's going to happen to the cameras? Are they going to squirt back and kill somebody? Or is it going to affect the CG of the airplane? So they did. And the difference between, you know, whatever, 400 knots and LBA, where, you know, fast airplane will go, was hugely expensive. So I'd give them a number and they're like, okay. And they'd write a check to Treasury and, and 
as the engineers had gaps outside of their stuff they had to do for the Navy, they would pile in on this. And, you know, Paramount's like, can we get it today? I'm like, no, because they're fixing like Hornet stuff and they got to do that. And then they'll get to your thing. I'm sorry. So that was frustrating, I'm sure, for them because there's a clock ticking and they need this stuff. And I mean, it was amazing. Like never the speed which they came through to do this and all their work was perfect. John Hill's an engineer over there. He's amazing. And Steph Denny was the head at the time, the lead. Admiral Grossclags were all working together to get this done among a million other things they had to do. So right. it was just like the Top Gun bros, you know? Yeah. Hey, your day's just going to be a lot longer. But like you said earlier, a cast of thousands and way more than I think the casual viewer understands because you've got these folks at Pax River who are, hey, what if we hang this certain size, certain weight camera, oh, by the way, out on a wing where it's now creating yaw and drag and everything yeah. else. And there's a lot to that. A lot of smart engineers that worked on that stuff. So yeah. Yeah, shout out to Navier and, and their team. Crazy. So do you think part of the reason they wanted to wait until now, in a sense, was some of the technology that was used as far as, you know, we talked about developing the story. We haven't really talked about F-18 versus F-35, et cetera, but just from what I've seen in some of the behind the scenes stuff that is on YouTube, the camera system was amazing. Oh, it was unbelievable. Yeah. Yeah. Super high tech camera. I think it's, I'm probably getting this wrong. And Joe, if you're listening to this, you know, call me up and yell at me, but I think it's the first 4K HD aerial stuff that's ever been filmed. And the cameras were IMAX capable. So it's all these different mediums. And we had like, I rode in the back because you know, I'm using lieutenants and I trusted them implicitly. But I'm like, we're going to go do some weird stuff off a route with a lieutenant. I'm going to hop in the back as we run the test route just to kind of get the feel of what's going on, you know, try to lead at the deck plate and bag a hop. But, <laughs> you know, I'm in the back and I'm like, I feel like I'm in the back of a Prowler or an S3 or something like there's nothing but structure in front of you. The cameras everywhere, these fisheye lenses, you can see out the side, but you can't see a whole lot in the front. So that was, I think, challenging for the actors too. Like you've instructed in the back of an airplane, right? Probably doing loud or something at some point, And you're like, I really like being in the front better because I don't feel so good when I'm in the back. And the less I see, the worse it is. I mean, these are people who are actors, right? They're not fighter pilots. Right. So they had to go and go through all this. And, but yeah, the camera systems were state-of-the-art, the highest tech things that you can put in the airplanes. And we put them on the airplanes. Like we're filming cat shots and traps. That was a very robust engineering effort because I called Naver again. I'm like, yeah, so we want to put this one on and we want to trap with it. And they go, you want to do what? I said, yeah, we want to trap with it and we want to catch that. We do it like 20 times. I think it was half a dozen times. And they're like, okay, ones and zeros. And they start getting their slide rules out and did their super genius stuff. And they got it so that nothing fell off an airplane and nothing got bent. We didn't hurt the airplane and the cameras, which I'm sure the cameras are wildly expensive, I imagine. So you, at the beginning of this discussion we've been having, talked about the day that Caesar started pestering you. The day you said yes till... Today, I mean, how long has this odyssey been? It's obviously, we waited two more years, but when was that when they first fingered you, so to speak? So, you probably cut that part out. Uh, <laughs> That's a legitimate term, yeah. by the way. I can't uh, help if you're going to correct uh, it. <laughs> so, the odyssey, the journey, the adventure, as it were, I think Caesar texted me, Do you want to be the Top Gun rep? I replied, Ha ha, ha ha ha, nope, in about <laughs> summer of 2018. It was when, about the time that Yank was getting slated over to Ford and get ready to go through his track. So about the summer of 18, I was finished up my deputy job. I want to say I started orders probably in September-ish. I think that's when we started filming at Coronado, motorcycle scene, something like September. 
And that was also supposed to be like my other job. Just do it four or five months, get them on their feet. And then I got in there and Airbus and Caesar realized how many moving parts there were and how much was going on and how much mission creep and how big of a footprint, how much liability was going on. And then the Airbus goes, hey, I'd, I'm not willing to switch horses. I can't make you do it, but I'd like you to see this through. And he was right. I mean, to put somebody new in, once yeah. production and filming started, and we're talking about airplanes and briefing and moving to bases and embedding on ships and scheduling airspace, working with the Top Gun class schedule, like to dump somebody else in the middle of that, it would have been a massive relearning curve for me. Yeah. I'm not that smart. It takes me a long time to learn, but I think anybody would have had a challenge after what I did for about six months. They would have keep me on for a turnover for like a month or so. And it's all changing. So everything you learn, there's like some new thing the next day. I did orders for easily a year, probably something more like till the end of 2019. And then it became whack-a-mole, right? Hey, I need you to come up to Santa Monica and sit with the special effects guys for two weeks. So I get orders and I go up for two weeks or I would bid around my Delta schedule to do a trip. And then I'd go up some of it pro bono just to help out because we we're out of drills or whatever as a reservist, or I would do drills. So I'd go up there and do that. And that was, you know, a week here, two weeks there, and tons of just like, hey, can you get on a call for an hour over rollout stuff? Or, hey, we got a question about this weapon and what's this going to look like? Hey, that, you know, we're doing the HUD for the adversary airplane. We want to see what it looks like. What's the boat stuff? You know, it's on and on and on. So there was an enormous amount of just death by a thousand cuts that occurred after I came off the orders. Some compensated, some not. You know, it's probably the cheapest labor the Navy ever had for this. <laughs> Don't but, tell uh, California. You probably got paid less than minimum wage. <laughs> I, oh, yeah. You know what? I actually did the math on that. It was based on hours. I made like a buck 65 an hour, I think, over the, over the years I did it. Plus, I lost, you know, I would have been making other money at yeah, the other job. Slips. But all told, we're looking at a four-year yeah. adventure so far, and I still... I've kind of become the media engagement guy just because I was for production. A lot of people worked on this and a lot of people have stories to tell and had big roles. But when you get into the filming part, that was kind of like the part people seem to be the most interested in when I talk to them. Like, what was it like, you know, working yeah. with Tom and how'd you do the airplane? And what was the thing with the camera? And until now, post-release, per request of Paramount, I couldn't really get into that stuff, obviously because spoilers and whatever. They have a piece that, they want me making sausage, right? Like even right at release. Now we're weeks behind it. The whole world's seen the movie, so it's not as big a deal. But Michelle Ryberg's the SVP of marketing and rollout. And she's like, just let it be the spectacle of the movie for a while. Right. And then you can get into all your kind of stuff we're talking about now. She and the whole team, creative team, just wanted people to go see the movie. Sure. And not go, well, this is how they did that. The magician doesn't need to reveal his tricks. Just watch the rabbit come out of the hat and enjoy it. Yeah. So that's kind of where that's been... And now it's, you know, I think it's going to start settling down now. I'm I'm lucky to go to some of these premieres. You know, Squadrons will have a premiere, like my old squadron of UFC 13 is doing one. Like, hey, can you come up? So <laughs> I bet a, a gap in some trips, and I'm going to go up and watch it with them. And nice. that's a great crowd to see it with. Oh, um, sure. You know, we're doing the crew screening tonight in L.A., so I'm going to go up there and spend a ton of money in a hotel and a great dinner with my wife and then go across the street and watch it. So, uh, yeah. Yeah. So it'll start slowing down here, I think, but it's been robust and well, fun. And it's worth mentioning that folks will hear this later, but you and I are recording just a couple of days before the official worldwide release. So I want to ask you this, and if it's not relevant, okay, but it was ready to be released, I think, right? For March of 20 or no, May of 20. And I'm curious. So it sits in, uh, I would hope, a very heavily guarded vault for two years. Was there a, an urge to tweak? During those two years, uh, and did they? So I went up with Airbus and the outgoing Airbus by Summer Miller mm -hmm. and the current Airbus by Summer Weitzel and the Chinfo, Emma Brown, 
we went up to the uh, Paramount Studio or the Paramount Theater or whatever to do the Navy final approval screening. And that was in, I think, September of 2020. It's in the can. It's done. You get to watch it. Because I realized this before that, we filmed 800 hours of aerial stuff. And I had to watch 800 hours of aerial stuff because there's some stuff, certain angles and things that you don't want getting out there. So I tried to do it by myself and I'm up there for two weeks and I called up to Top Gun. I'm like, I need you to send me five bros because I'm going to be here for a month. So the so guy's just watching and seeing if there was anything sensitive about a flight deck. Hey, there's a panel open. We don't want that. Or, hey, there's something on the carrier. We went up and did the the Navy. Good to go. You own it now. Super it's all yours. Solo, yeah, because yeah. we had, yeah, totally. We had, as per the contract with the Department of Defense, we had final refusal right. Like we weren't going to say... We're pulling our support. You can't show them like, but it was, <laughs> right. did you sway from any of the agreed story points, the dialogue, the plots? Did you sneak in anything in there that was morally reprehensible or not in keeping with core values? And of course they didn't. It was all great. Security issues, whatever. So we went up, we watched that in September of 2020. I think the Lady Gaga song, I don't recall that being in there. And this is two years ago when I saw it the first time. I think that got changed and was new. That in the video where Tom's actually flying the P-51 in the video. Yeah, yeah it's his P-51. It's beautiful. I got a bunch of people rides in during filming because it would, but it not would you. fly in. And then Randy, his pilot, would have to move it because the Navy's like, we've allowed within regs that you can bring it in here, but it can't just stay here for a week. It's got to go somewhere else. Well, but a hangar. Nope. It's got to be off property. So he'd land and Randy would take the airplane. I go, hey, Tom, I got a hardworking sailor here. I got somebody that helped out. Can they jump in the back when Randy moves the airplane to Hanford or something? Oh, yeah, anytime. Yeah. So I spent a year getting people rides, and somebody <laughs> said to me, like, when are you going to get a ride in Tom's P-51? I go, you know what? I got a great plan. When we wrap in Fallon at the end of whatever it was, 19, he'll bring his P-51 out there. I will say, hey, I'm going to ship my bags. I'd like to go back with you to Burbank in the P-51. And, you know, he's, we got along great, and I'm sure he's going to say yes. So he rolls up in his Honda jet. And uh, I'm like, oh, he look, get the memo. you brought the Honda jet. I probably should have worked this before you came out. Uh, it's a little further. That's kind of a whole long P-51 flight. And he's like, well, you want to go back in the Honda jet? I said, no, I got a Southwest. I'm going to jump on that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So he flies that in the movie, which is cool. Yeah. Uh, you know, he does all his flying in the movies. He's American made. And uh, yeah. he flew the helicopters in Mission Impossible. The dude's, dude's been flying as long as we have. He's a great pilot, which made it very easy working with him because had he been some random movie star with that kind of, he's an 800 pound gorilla, right? So when he wants something, people kind of snap to, to get it. But if he wanted whatever it was, I don't want to fly underneath the bridge inverted in a division at 9,000 knots. And I said, no to some pick any other random actor of similar statue. They might've been like, yeah, well, I don't care what you think. Navy guy, we're going to do it. But Tom knew enough not to ask for stupid stuff. He'd mm-hmm. ask for things that, Maybe we had to massage a little bit when I would tell him like, yeah, I'm just not comfortable with that particular thing. He'd go, okay, we're done because he was smart enough to know that I'm there to keep him safe. And I know the Hornet and he doesn't, and he does now he's got a bunch of time in it, but uh, (laughs) great to have him as an experienced aviator work with. It made my job a lot easier and made me a lot more comfortable with what was going on that I knew he knew enough to not get himself killed with Lieutenant driving him around. He's like a, robot a machine he's the hardest working guy i've ever met i've never seen him not working and he would leave the set and he'd get in his jet at the end of a weekend or something and he'd fly over to europe to work on mission impossible seven and eight at the same time so i told chris mccory is the writer and he writes and directs all the mission impossibles i asked him one time like oh my god so tom's filming three giant blockbuster movies he's doing mission seven and eight at the same time 
And he goes, well, we don't call a mission difficult. <laughs> I thought that was kind of funny. <laughs> is he supposed to go into space and film at some point, I guess? I've heard that. I haven't talked to him about it. But okay. yeah, allegedly he is on track. Yeah. Uh, I will tell you this. So when Tom's like, we're going to do this, just take it to the bank. He's doing it. Yeah. Everybody thought he was nuts to fly in the jet and to get the cast members in the jet. Everybody was like, I thought he was crazy. I'm like, are you sure you want to do this? Because you got all these engineers that can do all the CGI. The fact that he is committed to it publicly, I'm certain that he's going to find some way to do that. The actors in the jet, if you even want to go there, is is that the simple answer to why F-18 versus F-35? I mean, obviously F-35's got different classification. that's what they wanted to do some of that. It was hard enough to do F-18 because we had to brief like, there's cameras everywhere, right? Not only are the cameras facing aft, not at the displays necessarily, although we did have some in the front, but there's visors. So we had to dumb down the airplane. We had to brief radar modes like, hey, you can't select this. You can't do that. You can't have this system or this radar, you know, right. picture up. And then sometimes, you know, we're human and we're creatures of habit. So somebody would, you know, rock right to get a symbology up and lock the guy in front of them and then quickly and do radar mechanics to sanitize it. But I would have to watch all this stuff and I would catch... Usually they would tell me like, hey, sir, I, you know, I selected M120 set for a minute. So we would have to go immediately take the tape into a room. I would take it. They delete it. Then you go to the delete the delete box to make sure it's not out there. And then there was an agreement with DOD that that stuff's like gone forever out there. It was a big expensive process to make it go away forever. Mm-hmm. But then back to what you're saying about the film that done in September of 2020, it probably went into some underground vault somewhere guarded by ninjas yeah like the secrecy around this not getting spillage was amazing everything they'd send me like to review these you see all these little clips that we have the behind the scenes stuff that's starting to trickle out Mm -hmm. they'd send it to me and you could only log in like three times it would disappear like mission impossible it's got a big (laughs) watermark it says you know cat brian ferguson so if i like post it on youtube Uh i'm going to jail or they're taking my house or something and then it only lasts for like a day It was like being on the inside of the programs in the Navy. Like they have their classification stuff down. Well, that's good. I mean, this is big business and it's also big entertainment and big influence. I mean, the whole world is going to be impacted by this in some way. Maybe not every reach of every country, but certainly a great portion of it. All right. So in all that, in all the years that you've been working towards this, what was your most fun day? You know, all the stuff I did with Walleye was awesome because it was like, he was my remote control airplane. You know, I'm on the radio and I'm like, okay, now do this, now do that, now do that. Now do it at 500 knots, now do it at 20 feet. And he's just like doing it because I'm driving him around. Mm-hmm. And picture having an RC airplane, you're like, oh, cool, I can buzz myself. But I'm doing it with a 50,000 pound airplane, 20 feet over my head, going really fast. That stuff, that was awesome. I had an awesome time working with walleye just watching pass over pass after pass after pass on paramount's dime but they wanted it so i'm like i'll do as many times you want Mm -hmm. i also really loved we had some time underway on the ship there was a stupid thing that came out it was all clickbait bullshit that somebody goes you know Tom was out on the ship. Everybody was told not to look at him and don't go on the O3 level. It was all I I like, yeah, it was like all that. made up bullshit. Yeah. So we're like, I ah, just ignore it. But then it started to get traction. So I got with him and I got with the captain of the ship. I'm like, you know, we can ignore it or we can get ahead of it because it's all stupid. You know, it's lies and whatever. Um, I'll tell you, like he didn't have open door office hours like CAG's room and you can't. We were working no. 18 hours a day. Our time right. was precious on the ship. So he's in his room and we'd start in the morning early, like five sometimes, and we'd finish at the end of all, you know, the sun goes down, you're kind of done unless we're filming in a space. 
but there's a lot of after stuff. And, you know, the days were like boat days, you know, yeah. they're 18 hours, you know, for the, him to have like, okay, Tom's bill from 11 to midnight and he's getting up at five. It just didn't make any sense. So I'm like, Hey, let's do some crew engagement or some ship's crew engagement. Right. So like we had the actors go down to the galley and they loved it. You know, Glenn and Monica J they go, Oh, that's a great idea. Can we do that? That's because they're really nice people. Mm-hmm. You know, I talked to now Admiral Sardiello was a captain of Theodore Roosevelt. And I'm like, yeah, I think we should do an all hands call and have him talk to the, in the hangar folks bay, right? in the hangar bay. Yeah. yeah. So we did that. And then we did a photo op where I'm going to get in so much trouble for this, but so Mario, his security guy, he's like the guy that keeps him in check and on task and like people away from him when it's getting weird. Like Secret uh, Service for the president. It's kind of like the detail, right? Yeah. So there was a, uh, hey, we're going to get him on this photo op and he'll be there with the captain and the admiral and the department heads and whatever and 500 or 1,000 sailors, something like that. We're going to flood the deck with Skittles and the helicopter's taking the picture. Skittles are all the different colored jerseys. Right. right? Yeah. Sorry. So yep. all the people on the flight deck with their colored jerseys, <laughs> that all mean something. So I talked to uh, Los Sardio. I'm like, hey, I got an idea. So let's get him up there. And then when the photo op's done, the Paramount photographer will take pictures of you guys. I will get rid of Mario. Hey, I'm sorry, Mario. I love you, man. But I'll get rid of Mario for a minute. And then you just turn him around and start him working the crowd. It is what it is. So I think I said something like, hey, Mario, there's a guy over there with a cell phone taking pictures. And he, what? So he, he's really good at his job. He's got a really hard job and he's really good. He's a great dude. So he like goes over and looks and Tom right. turns around and there's like the entire V1 division or something. And so he starts shaking hands and that dude stood up on the flight deck for an hour and shook all those hands, said all those sailors. That's cool. And we had a number of those engagements, you know, in Fallon. I'm riding in with him in the car and it's early morning. And I knew there's some maintenance issues with the jet. And I'm like, just not something he might normally think about because he's got so many things going sure. through his head. And I'm like, hey, Tom, I need you to do me a favor. When we go in there, before we go into the trailer to brief, I need to take you in the maintenance room. They're just wrapping up. And kids that were there last night, I say kids respectfully, but the young sailors that were in there last night working on the jets are still there. They have been working all night to make sure that we have what we need to do the launch this morning. I would love it if you would come in just a flyby, just say hi. 30 seconds, don't need to anchor, whatever. And he's like, oh, I love the rest of their lives. But totally. Because, you know, if you're, for us, we're like, yeah, you play me. But if you're 20 and this giant movie star walks into the room and says, hey, thanks for working on the Jets. It like life-changing, right? Yeah. I know we're pressurized time and I know we're like every second counts, but I could really use you doing this and and that would be good for them. Oh, absolutely. So he goes in there, we walk into this space that doing the maintenance dead out of and he walks in. He's in there for 10 minutes just talking to him. Gave out coins and stuff and shaking hands. So there was a lot of really good sailor engagement. So like those are the days that I remember where, and not just Tom, like we talk about Tom because he's 800 pound gorilla. But when you take somebody whose time is valuable like that, who gets it and is willing to go and engage with, you know, our young sailors. Did you see the picture from the premiere where the young sailor, female at the Lowry Theater comes up and bumps into him by accident because he's kind of got through the crowd and somebody's getting a whole thing like speed lens. Oh, I'm sorry. And he looks and he gives her a big handshake and the secretary of the Navy stand right there. And she's an E3. So biggest smile I've ever seen. Like those are the days that of this whole experience, you know, our sailors are gold and they're amazing and they're not paid what they're worth and they work too much. And when you can get them these little things that mean so much to them by getting these personal interactions with somebody that, you know, like I don't want to get a big thing about credits, but you get these casual sailor that worked all night to paint a jet or something. And, you know, if you can get their name in there or something so that their mom sees it, or you get somebody as an extra and you go, Hey, tell your mom that you're going to be in the scene where you're the guy driving the tug that brings the airplane up to Tom, you know, cause I love these Hollywood people. They're great, but those are our people, right? So what you can do for them, 
Like you just watch them light up when yeah. something like that happens. No doubt. It's Tom or whoever. Those were a lot of the good days. And yeah. I really enjoyed those. No doubt. Um, and obviously flying. I jump in the back of airplanes. So we talked at the very beginning about what the Navy's goals were. Obviously Paramount had their goals as well, but as you now as a citizen and a Navy guy and fighter pilot and everything else, look at the final outcome. Are you satisfied? Did the Navy get what they wanted? Yeah. I think the Navy is going to get more than what they wanted. You know, there's that 500% number. I get, every interview I do, I get asked 5% recruiting in 86. I have no idea. I'm sure it was something, right? It's at least one dude. It's me and probably you and everybody else who won't admit it. But. I already wanted to do it. <laughs> okay. Got it. Got it. Liar. As far as you know. Yeah. But you know, it did. It, it shaped the generation of all our contemporaries that, you know, are now flag officers and stuff. Like we're underachievers. So we're falling off the cliff, but all the guys that are out doing great things and gals. Doing it. Yeah. yeah. So I'm sure that had some influence and I think the Navy is going to enjoy not only that, but I think there's also going to be a strategic message that goes out there because we achieve maximum realism using real pilots with real world tactics on a viable mission that involved ingress, low altitude strike, evasion of threats, precision munitions delivery, contested target area, fighting their way out air to air. Like we can do all that stuff in one mission. That's the F-18, right? I think this will give pause to other nations who want to test us and they're going to look at it, not because they saw the movie, so they're going to back out, but they're going to look at it and be like, so that's something to think about, huh? Yeah. So I think there's some of that. And I think, you know, like there's going to be some, it's going to highlight the professionalism and lethality of the Navy to maybe even some policymakers like, wow, the Navy is really important. And their ability to send a runway anywhere on the planet within 96 hours and deliver precision munitions is a good thing. And we'd forgotten about that because we don't think about it every day. So I think there's a ton of second, third, fourth, fifth order effects that will come out of this that will be great for the Navy, great for America, and great for other services, right? There's the Air Force has their spot at the beginning. It's like the beginning of Top Gun Maverick. There's an Air Force recruiting trailer. Well played, Air Force. Well played. (laughs) But, you know, good for them. And people are going to join the Army and the British Special Force. Like, it's going to showcase the military in a way that I think everybody wins. And for the low, low price of didn't cost us nothing except a lot of hard work. So uh, I think the American taxpayer is a huge winner on this because we're getting a huge return on a zero investment other than our time. Clearly, you invested a lot of yourself in it. So I think if I may speak for all the listeners and audience, you know, thank you for uh, your dedication to the film and for your time today. I got to ask you, I mean, so last time I asked you, you know, I'm still doing the Navy thing. You're still flying. In fact, you moved seats since then, right? You left seat now at Delta? Yeah. Congratulations. I could do that, but I'm just comfortable where I am for now. So uh, anyway, so what's the future hold for you now? Do you like this gig? It sounds like you enjoyed it. Chella, when I was doing it, the big joke on the set to all the people, the crew was like, I'll never work in Hollywood again. It was a great experience, but it was like Sears school. Like, you don't like it when you're doing it, but you, <laughs> you like look back and like, man, that was it. awesome. It was not awesome, but it was a great experience. Yeah. And frankly, some of the stress was buying risk for a lot of senior leadership. And if I messed it up, it was going to be Ferg messed it up, mm-hmm. not the Navy sucks or whatever, but it would have been horrible for the Navy if something went wrong. So you know, every time four lieutenants who are super capable and the greatest fighter pilots in the world take off, there's still four lieutenants in their 20s and they're going to go do some weird shit on the range with a camera with movie stars in the back. So every hour that they're airborne, I'm aging like three days because <laughs> and eventually I got over it. I'm like, OK, this is all smooth. It's working good. But there was a lot of dog years. How's this going to go? Because <laughs> anything we hope to gain, if we so much as scratched one of the taxpayers airplanes. It's all for nothing. It would have been bad. So there was a lot of stress to that. And I, so I was always joking, like, I'll never work in this business again. So fast forward, like a year later, a lot of the same guys working on 
Top Gun Maverick, the uh, aerial unit, K2, La Rosa, mm -hmm. and Robert K, and Fitzmaurice, all the guys that brought the amazing, the most complex aerial sequences ever filmed or ever will be filmed to Top Gun Maverick are now on a project also with Glenn Powell, the guy I was talking about before, the Hudner Brown story, which if you're listening to this and you don't know the Thomas Hudner, Jesse Brown story, go look it up, read the book Devotion by Adam Makos. It's a great story that transcends race and it's all about the Navy's core values and how we look out for each other. We don't see color. We don't see sex. We're like, we're just wingmen. So they're making that film with Glenn Powell and they call and they go, Hey, we need you as a consultant. And I go, that's Korean war stuff. I don't really know that much about the Korean war. They go, well, you know more than we do. So can you be out here tomorrow? <laughs> so I'd actually go in and switch a Delta trip. Thankfully there's covered. So I opened up a gap on my schedule and I said, okay, but you got to fly me out there and I can do two weeks and so on and so on. And I'd like to be paid the value that I just gave up on a trip. So we worked out an arrangement. I went over to Tiller Association and I sat with Mark and all the historians and I said, hey, I've got a day. I need to know everything about uh, <laughs> the USS Leyte and Carrier Aviation, the F-4, Joseph Reservoir and Thomas Hunter and Jesse Brown. And that was awesome because it's telling another fantastic Navy story. That one comes out later this year. It's a great Navy story. Great director, Bruce Dillard and Glenn Powell plays Thomas Hunter. And I got to meet Thomas Hunter's son, oh, who's cool. awesome. Production assistant goes, uh, hey, could you, this is Tom, can you walk him around? Because there's some of the same PAs and they knew us personal. Mm -hmm. I want to help out. So I'm like, yeah, if you can keep up, man, I got two radios and, and Nikes <laughs> on, but I'm running around because the movie set's busy. And yeah. I kept looking at him. And I'm like, that guy looks so familiar. And I go, Tom, I don't know where I know you from. So familiar. What's your last name? He goes, Hudner. I'm like, no, your last name. He goes, Tom Hudner. I'm Thomas Hudner Jr. I'm like, oh, <laughs> like Thomas Hudner, Thomas Hudner. He goes, yeah. So it was his son and he had the Medal of Honor with him, which if you watch the movie, Glenn Powell actually puts on when the president gives him the Medal of Honor. It's actually Thomas Hudner. Yeah, wow, it's not a problem. Tom Hudner Jr. is in the audience and he's like, uh, hey, so I got a question. Would you like to use the actual one? They're like, oh, we'd love to if we could get it. And he goes, well, it's in my backpack. <laughs> So he gives it to him. So Glenn is getting the actual Medal of Honor wow. put on, which was amazing. And then at the end, he gave me his dad's coin. He goes, hey, I really appreciate your passion in this and tell my dad's story. And so here, I think he'd like you to have this. So that was really cool. And so, you know, who knows if the opportunity is right and somebody thinks I have something to offer, then they're, you know, A, probably wrong, but B... <laughs> You've you spent know, the last two hours trying to prove that. I think I'm going to tell you you're wrong. So yeah. Well, anyway. so yeah, it's uh, if the right opportunity comes up and it's a good story, like these were Navy stories. So this is yeah. my whole life's been about right yeah. outside of my wife and my kids is, sure. is the Navy. It's our passion. It's what we love and we defend it violently. So I'd certainly tell another Navy story for sure, but I think it'll be a while before Top Gun 3 comes out. So <laughs> I think I'm good there. You mentioned something about the Blue Angels earlier. What can you tell us about that real quick? Yeah, so there is a work in progress now for the 75th anniversary of the team's documentary. Do you remember Around the World at Speed of Sound when Rugdance Wildridge was the boss and there was a thing like with Dennis Quaid? Right? So I watched that Around the World at Speed of Sound right when I joined the Navy. I'm like, oh, yeah. now I'm in the Navy. I want to be a Blue Angel. Of course, it didn't pan out. <laughs> but hey, I'll take a solo ride if you're listening there, Boss Castle Ring. I get an email from Greg Wildridge. And I've watched that video. I literally watched it till I wore it out, VHS, bought another one, and had ironically seen it in my garage, cleaning some stuff out like a week prior. The <laughs> old VHS, around the world speed of sound. I get this email from him and he goes, hey, Ferg, it's a rug dance. Uh, I was in a video. And I'm like, it was cooler than meeting, you know, some of the people in the other movie. I'm like, that's rug dance. He's the one in the movie, the yeah, thing yeah. with Dennis Quaid. Oh, that's so cool. So he goes, hey, I know you navigated the Hollywood thing. Would you mind helping us out with a few things? So, uh, you know, I... Not a heavy lift there. I've been helping with a couple of backstage things. I'm the 0.000001% of that piece, but trying to help them navigate some equipment and some who to get, who to use. Like I said, if you don't use La Rosa, 
don't bother making it. And if you're looking for the new Dennis Quaid, it's got to be Glenn Powell. So I called Glenn and said, hey, man, I think this would be a great thing to do for the Navy. And Glenn's all in. He goes, oh, my God, that's got to be perfect. I'd love to do that. So that's uh, not really working on that, just kind of making phone calls. And uh, a lot of other more important people are doing better stuff with that. But I'm sure it'll be great. And it'll showcase, uh, you know, the amazing team and what they do for America and and their recruiting. It's going to be a great year for Navy recruiting. Sounds like it. So I don't know if you have this sensation, but at different points in my life, I can remember one small detail of something super well. Now, I can't remember important stuff, but that video you're talking about, remember they go to like Romania or something, right? The Blue Angels go overseas. They're showing Captain Woolrich at an air show, and he's just met his general counterpart or whatever, Mm -hmm. and an airplane flies over. And what does he do? He turns and looks. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Do you remember that? Like we all do. Exactly. And I remember seeing that when I was a young man. I'm thinking, here's a guy who's done so much and still turns and looks. I think my 20th anniversary is at Mr. A's. Why? Because it looks at final for Lindbergh. (laughs) Also, because I love my wife, want to take her somewhere nice. Of course. course. Yeah, we all do that. It's amazing. And we'll do it till the day we die. We'll be in our wheelchairs. Your airplane will go overhead or drone or whatever. If my neck will still turn. And and we'll look at it. So, all right, for in the 1986 Top Gun. We all see the students, we see basically two instructors, right? And we all know that for those of us who have been to Top Gun, that is not realistic. On this one, we see a bunch of graduates, and we see Tom Cruise as Maverick come back and teach them. It's called Top Gun Maverick, but we don't really see what Top Gun does day in, day out, which frankly, if they made a movie about reality, would probably be pretty boring. But we see the product of that in the actors that are these patch wearers and wearing real fleet squadron patches, by the way, that was cool. Yeah, yeah. But they're wearing the Top Gun patch on their sleeves. So they're graduates and we see what they're capable of. I don't know. You tell me, I mean, how do we get the word out any better than that about what the folks up in Fallon really do day in and day out? Well, I'll tell you, so there, you said something like it would be a documentary. There is a documentary coming out. I'm sure you're aware of it. And that's going to show kind of the behind the scenes to the extent that we can at our classification levels. Mm-hmm. So that'll show like how we make the sausage and the day to day. Cause what you're right, people don't realize they watch the movie like, wow, combat power is cool. Naval aviation is awesome. But to get there, there's, as you well know, there ain't no 12 hour days at Top Gun, whether you're you know, going day. through as a class or yeah, that's Saturday when there's nothing in the building and you're just in the book. What they don't get is the, what goes into that. So this is the Christmas morning, right? Everything else is the 364 days leading up to Christmas, which is what happens at Top Gun. The movie is Christmas morning. Bombs on target. We went back to the ship, have a slider. High fives. What I think is important to pull out of this, that's going to be hard for the public and Joe the plumber to tease out because they're just like, yay, Christmas morning, we win, victory in combat, is the Top Gun, the Navy Fighter Weapons School as an institution for over 50 years has been delivering behind the scenes this pinnacle, amazing combat power of taking people in, getting them as smart and as good as anybody on the planet, you know, best fighter pilots on the planet, period, right? And to be able to take that and push it out to the fleet, like, you know, the Jedis or whatever, Mm -hmm. to get to a point where right now, today, and every day since, we can go anywhere in the world against any adversary tonight and win in combat decisively because of Top Gun. It's a culture excellence lethality that has, you know, everybody tries to replicate it, even with the Navy lines. And nobody ever quite gets to Top Gun, right? There's a lot of different services and a lot of Navy schools and communities that do a very good job of trying to replicate it, but there's only one Top Gun. And the result is if you go up against a, not even a Top Gun instructor or graduate SFTI or just a lieutenant in the fleet squadron who's got an SFTI, a strike fighter tactics instructor, somebody who's been to the school, back out in the fleet, wearing the patch, teaching all the techniques, tactics, procedures, just that standard fleet lieutenant you're going to lose against that 
guy or gal in combat because of everything that comes down and trickles down from Top Gun into the fleet. So I think it's important to realize that Top Gun as an institution and for over 50 years has generated decisive naval air combat power and always will. Nobody's going to win against that team. 2022 is the 53rd year. We had our anniversary right before COVID and celebrated 50. And I agree. I went as a relatively senior lieutenant, and it was not quite the halfway point in my career, and yet it was the high-water mark of my career being there. Because while I appreciate what you said about the best fighter pilots, I would say that was everyone else. I was (laughs) decidedly average on the staff, but it was incredible. The murder board, the tactics they come up with, their procedures, the flying, there's none better. So, yeah, I totally agree. No such thing as average up in the school, right? What about the Navy for you? The Navy, so I'm coming up on 30 years next year, so mandatory retirement as an 06. As we learned in the movie. Yeah. (laughs) yeah. Maybe I'll be in for 38 years or whatever as a captain. So, yeah, that'll be time to, uh, I hope I've done some good along the way and take care of some folks. And I feel good that this was a good, for my small part, and it was something that will have impact on another generation and to get us to where we need to go to be combat ready and lethal. Yeah. But yeah, it'll be good to kind of get back to uh, having only one job because I've got like four now. So uh, to just be play with the kids and the wife and the dog and sit around and be bored. Well, as long as they still love you, and it sounds like they do, I think you've probably balanced them all very well. So uh, congratulations on that. Thank you for what you did for all movie lovers in the Navy and everyone that uh, you helped with this movie. And just for your couple hours today to talk about it, it's been really amazing. Normally, Ferg, as you know, at the end of our episodes. I always ask about call signs. I did that with you back on episode two. So I think we know that one. There's something that's been bothering me ever since then. Uh, Hopefully you have forgotten probably most viewers too, but I owe you a public apology because when I was a brand new podcaster, I didn't know anything. I remember doing the editing myself. Thank goodness I've got a producer now. And on the next episode, episode three, I made some cockamamie statement like, oh, Ferg was smacking his lips. I must have fed him some peanut butter, some stupid thing. And so I didn't need to say that. It was unnecessary for a guy who gave me his time. Well, thank you. But I've always wanted to apologize publicly. So now you have it. (laughs) Thank you, brother. I'll take a bottle of peanut butter whiskey. How about that? (laughs) Do they make such things? Yeah, it's good for a shot. I wouldn't buy a whole bottle. So So I'll take Angel's Envy instead. (laughs) All right. Man, this was awesome. And again, thanks. I'll let you have the parting shots, last words. I know you've heard this kind of from some other guests, but it's important to reiterate that so you get Tom Cruise and all the actors and the crew are walking the red carpet and they're getting their fame and accolades. But what they're really doing is telling the story of the men and women on the deck plate, the sailors, the chiefs. You know, we obviously have warrants and civilians and officers, but it's the sailors and the chiefs who keep the Navy running day in, day out. They are the heroes of the film. Okay, Maverick is the character, but the sailors and the chiefs who are out there doing the job every day, right now, somewhere on the other side of the world at night, in the rain, on the flight deck. Those are the heroes of not only the film, but the Navy itself. And that's who keeps us safe so that we can sit in here and do this. We can go to the mall, we can go to the movies and watch Top Gun Maverick for the 18th time or whatever, and not have to worry about the bad guy coming over the horizon because we have young men and women out there downrange every day. And I just hope that they get a boost from this because they are the machine They're the true heroes of the story. A shout out to all my uh, colleagues, my sailors and chief petty officers and and everybody in uniform. And then finally, just the families, because we can't do what we do without the support of the families. And that's a huge part. And it's a really, really hard job to be able to send your loved ones away into harm's way and wait. So shout out to, you know, all them and the families. And of course, you know, my beautiful wife has been supporting me for so long. Susan, I love you. 
I'm just glad that we have such a great country and such great patriots all over the world in the Navy. You've been listening to the Fighter Pilot Podcast, brought to you by BBR Productions. Got a question for the show? Email us at questions at fighterpilotpodcast.com or leave a message on our listener line at 877-MACH-101. That's 877-622-4101. Be sure to follow us on your favorite social media platform and check out our website, fighterpilotpodcast.com. For exclusive content and to help support the show, check out our Patreon page. Thanks for listening. Nicely done, maybe. God bless America. Thanks to our title sponsor, National University. National University is committed to supporting veterans, active duty personnel, and military families through flexible online courses and master's and doctoral programs in high-demand fields, providing excellent career advancement opportunity. National University is a yellow ribbon school that proudly accepts the post-9-11 GI Bill and goes the extra mile by offering additional assistance to cover expenses that may not be covered by the GI Bill. To learn more, visit nu.edu forward slash veteran.